In the most divisive of times, the great debates rage on. Who was the best Batman? Was the book truly better than the movie? Did Han shoot first? Nerds with opinions will seek to answer life's greatest questions. Hello there, fellow nerds. You are listening to Nerds with Opinions, episode number 94. As always, I'm your host, Matt Holman. Today on the podcast, I am once again joined by guest host, Jimmy Levins, and we are doing the second part of our Best of 2020 series, and we are doing Best of 2020 television. It was a great year for, for television, much better than it was for film. You know, a lot, a lot of TV was still be was able to be released because everybody was at home. So we had a lot to talk about. So I'm not going to hold this up any longer. Without further ado, here it is. Best of 2020 television. So I am back with my guest host, Jimmy Levins, and we are doing the second part of our 2020 year in review. We covered the films that we wanted to talk about that we felt, you know, was, were significant in either, you know, a, a mostly good way or there was a couple that were, you know, were kind of in a bad way, but significant enough for us to talk about. And now we are discussing television shows and miniseries. And I think we're going to you know, that we're going to have broad strokes with that because obviously like some of these are like docu-series that we're going to talk about. Some of them are scripted miniseries. So I just want to call it television shows miniseries. Uh, but I think that's going to kind of overlap because I don't know if we necessarily need to have another classification of docu-stuff. Um, so I would love for you just to kick this right off and rattle a, rattle a few off. Nice. Well, uh, kind of, yeah, because kind of like we said in the last episode of part one about movies was this was definitely a uh, an unorthodox and unexpected uh, year of media intake for many a reason. Uh, I was expecting to have more to really talk about regarding TV shows and miniseries, but like... Can I ask I, a question I, about that? I, don't, yeah, I hate up? to interrupt, but... I'm wondering, do you think that's because you maybe went back and watched stuff that was older that like you either had not seen or that you wanted to revisit? Because the reason I ask that is because that's definitely part of what my thing was is if you look at my my list of what I, I took in on 2020, it's massive compared to but it's it's largely made up of hey, let's watch this thing that either I have never seen that's from the 70s or let's go back and watch this movie that I haven't seen, that I have seen, but not since 1995 or, you know, whatever it may be. Do you feel like you consumed a lot more older media or stuff you just had never seen before? Oh, I'm all over the place. I definitely older media. Like uh, okay. I, I'm on Letterboxd. And so usually every time you log something, it keeps track of your stats, your analytics. And it noticed my most popular trend of I watched predominantly predominantly new movies I have not seen, meaning like I've never seen them before, period. Right. And but those I, could have been older films that were prior yes. to 2020. Okay, yeah. Yes. That's Pri what my I, I thought my, so. So that's why I asked. Yeah. And my median it told me was I primarily watched a lot of movies between in the 90s and 80s, it said. 
And uh, that makes sense because that was like that was your journey. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Lots of Arnold Schwarzenegger movies in the uh, from the 90s. I watched for sure. Uh, (laughs) And then anything that and a lot of filmographies by directors. So because of the director focus, I was everywhere because a lot of times the director spans multiple decades. Sure. Uh, Yeah. And then I noticed because I was in this habit of watching a movie, it almost felt like more of a commitment to start a TV show, which is weird because there's a notion of hours spent. And I'm like thinking, well, one movie can be one episode of this one TV show if it's an hour and a half, or three episodes is worth a movie. But something, there is something I think in our brain chemistry where a lot of people, it's easier for us to binge a show than watch a long movie. And I've heard, so it's kind of that weird little thing I've noticed in our streaming culture where people will complain about, oh, Lawrence Arabia, that's like four and a half hours long, but I'll binge all of Shit's Creek in one sitting. There's that whole. Uh, So uh, what I wonder about that, and like, I don't want to go too far into the weeds of this because this is, that's a bigger conversation. Um, But I, I, yeah, I've, I've had the same, um, I've had the same realization and, and I've noticed that about our culture. I think it may be that we are so indoctrinated with like bite-sized chunks that Mm -hmm. even if, even if the total amount of media that we are consuming in one time would be equivalent to a, you know, four and a half hours or five hours or whatever, we're still like watching these in incremental chunks, half hour here, hour here you know, whatever it may be. And so I think the, the binging thing, especially depending on the type of content. So mm-hmm. I don't, you know, I, something very, very heady and maybe slow. I, I, I don't hear a lot of people going, you know, oh yeah, well I, I, I binged, you know, this or whatever, but it, it's, you know, something like, oh, I watched six episodes of The Office back to back. It's, and not that the, the office is not smartly written. It is, but it's one of those things where I think you can, if that's the kind of attention span that you have, you can put minimal, minimal focus on it and still enjoy it. Um, so I think that's, I think that's kind of maybe the difference. Whereas like to use your comparison for Lawrence of Arabia for our current culture, that's arguably a slow film. Yes. And yes, it is. So that like slow pace in however long it is, you know, that, that is a super long movie. Is it actually four and a half hour movie? Four and a half hour I, movie? I, I was just doing a, a, a like it's, gross exaggeration because literally right. every time. But I'm it's got at least be three. It's at least three, three plus. And it's I make that joke because a lot of people like they always seem to up the hours of a long movie, even when it's like all my friends are like, oh, uh, who are in film school are like, oh, I won't watch The Godfather. I want to watch uh like any foreign films. I don't watch any like epics because they're like five hours long. I'm like they always up it. And I'm like, Oh no, that's what everybody was saying about the Irishman. Like it's yeah. a five hour movie. And it's like, okay, it's three and a half, which is yes, yeah. very long, but yeah. like says the not, person. Yeah. Not and, exaggerate. and those same people were like, we'll rewatch all of parks and rec in like a weekend. So it's just that whole, I think you're right about the whole, it's not in the length of time. It's how the length of time is presented as well. Well, and then and you have like those breaks in between, whereas yes. it's it's harder to say invested into a film 
That requires if, unbroken um, attention as well. Right. And if, if you yeah. are putting those incremental breaks in, it, it's harder to, to stay invested in it. And, um, and, and like I said, I, I think that like something where somebody can put minimal attention into and still get the overall message, concept, mm-hmm. story, whatever – I think that I think that's part of it, you know, and like, t- to be honest, I mean, there, there's sometimes where, but I'm very cognizant of, of it, where I, I feel like I am in those sorts of moods, like, okay, well, I could have the time to sit down and watch a whole entire film. But, you know, after an hour, I might go, actually, I should maybe be doing something else. And mm. I try to look at it as like productivity. So I, I, you know, and then sometimes it'll be like, well, no, after an hour, like, let's keep watching. But then sometimes, whereas a movie might, there might still be some left. And then I have to either commit to watching all of it or stop in the middle of it and then come back to it later, which I don't love doing with a movie. Um, so I get that. But I think, yeah, I think a lot of times like the other, the other side of the coin, like what you were saying is that, yeah, it's the thing where. Oh, yeah somebody is kind of fooling themselves like, oh, well, geez, I can't sit down for four hours and watch a film or something like that. But then, you know, six hours later, they've they've watched that amount of television, but it was, you know, broken up into yeah. multiple episodes. Oh, yeah. And I feel like the Netflix model is almost like we got to make something that our audience can half pay attention to while also being on their phones, doing some homework on their laptop, and they still get the gist of it. And like, I do that all the time. And it's hard to because I'll, that will want to dominate my attention span where I'm like, no, no, I want to actually watch this lengthy, uh, like brain, uh, this attention uh, testing audience patient like testing a movie like I, I almost feel like I gotta I keep training myself and so I think because of that I'm so used to only doing movies the notion of tv shows seems more of a commitment to me sometimes because I know if I start it I'm gonna binge it because I will binge it like well and it, and it's funny that you bring up the like getting distracted by a phone or you know outside stuff like that so that would be another thing that I think is like <laughs> is shoots holes in the argument of like, oh gosh, like I can't watch a three hour movie at one time. That's too long. Is you have these folks that are probably eating up that much time, if not more to watch, let's say, you know, a single hour show or maybe like a couple episodes of a show because they stop some, so many times to fuck around on their phone or if they're, yeah. they start messing around on their phone and go, oh, I got to rewind. I missed this thing. You know, uh, that's I hate a, when people make me do that. Like they're like, oh, thing. I wasn't paying attention. Can you rewind back? And I'm like, no, you figured out yourself. I'm not going to rewind it for you. That's I once did that because I got so mad at them. <laughs> yeah. So I, um, you know, of course we, we've all been guilty of that. I, I, I've yes, done that, yeah, but same. I, I, uh, I try to, I try to, you know, set the, that stuff aside and like, you know, settle in and, and focus on what I'm what I'm watching um, for the, oh, yeah. the duration. And, and I think that's definitely like I do miss the theater experience where you almost have that unbroken attention where you're only looking at the one screen. And yeah. so, yeah, I definitely and I have a relatively good home theater system to where I can somewhat emulate that. But I mean, in the end, I feel like most of the stuff I've been consuming has definitely been on either I've noticed Netflix or HBO in terms of like the current shows that I've been on my look at my list. And those are like the two streaming platforms that I've been on primarily because I don't really have, I have direct TV, but I never really watch things as they air. I just watch them when they come on streaming. Uh, 
so, I mean, a couple of ones that I'm going to jot off, uh, uh, kind of that pertain back to the topic of basically that long winded conversation that I kind of yeah, started. I'm sorry. With. I, that was all my no, no, no. fault, but I, well, it, it was, it was something it was also, significant. I thought we could have a quick aside about, Oh no, I'm glad we, I actually wanted to, because I basically long story short, my answer was my TV show list is relatively small because I was watching so many movies. Uh, but I'm glad we talked about that because it is definitely a interesting sociological trend in how we as humans intake our media, our attention span, and just kind of our ritual habits now because we are so overwhelmed by media. Where do we begin? Where do we start? Because um, if you have all these options to watch something, you're most likely not going to watch it because you'll take it for granted. Uh, so I do kind of miss the expiration deadlines on like, oh, you only have a week left to watch this show because then you're more likely to watch it. Uh, both A lot of the TV shows like they're always on there. So it's, it's like where to begin. So I think that's also why my TV show list is relatively small was I didn't know where to begin because there's just so much. So a lot mm -hmm. of that I have are by uh, recommendation. Like for instance, a couple shows that I've finished uh, during the 2020 year was uh, I'm going to, cause the finale was in 2020 and I won't go too much into it because I know a lot of our listeners probably haven't seen the finale of the good place. Uh, that was a show that I definitely binged uh, in small incremental chunks. I started watching it with a girl I was seeing at the time and, and they got me into it. And so I watched it leading up to the quarantine. And that was kind of like my feel good binge where I'm like, okay, I'm stuck at home. I guess I'll watch the good place. And I'll kind of timed out because uh, actually wait, I take that back. It ended in January before the pandemic happened. So that was like my last, like, uh, feel good show back when things were relatively normal. And then I had, <laughs> so I need, and, I, and then I had and shit's Creek. It was just Creek. all downhill after that. <laughs> exactly. Then I just like milked shit's Creek for the rest of this, the, the quarantine because like why binge a good thing? You want to have something nice and light to kind of just fall back on. Like those who have the office of parks and rec. I love those shows. I, I've seen those shows, but let's try something new in the mix. So that, the last two ones were good place and shit's Creek. Uh, and honestly, I love the good place. Um, I think the finale did a really good job and really, I think, summing things up, a lot of nice closure, a lot of nice uh, time for each character that we've all kind of grown and became fond of. Uh, and I'm very content. Rarely am I content with the finale of a TV show, but this one, I'm like, this one, it fits tone, it fits in its overall message, and you can just tell that there wasn't like some new showrunner that was trying to like essentially make up for the fact that there's a different vision going on. It's all the same person. There's consistency. So overall, right. for, for those who haven't seen The Good Place, watch it and enjoy the finale. And then uh, another cute little feel-good show that I'll like uh, mention before I get back to you was there was this one show, the season one came out about two years ago in 2018, but the second season came out in 2020. So I'm, I'm just wrapping up the season two and it's just a sweet feel good animated show that reminds me of my many days watching like PBS kids and on Saturday morning cartoons, but it's not pandering. It, it, I feel like adults and older people can also enjoy it. It's called Hilda. It's uh, this British cartoon show based on a comic series. And it has this whole uh, lightheartedness and heartfeltness that reminds me of like, say, uh, 
like a lot of the old classic shows that I used to watch as a kid, but there's a lot of intelligence, a lot of good messages. And it's basically about this young girl who lives in this world where fantasy is kind of just accepted. Like you just kind of grew up and like, oh yeah, there's an elf, there's a troll. Um, and she's sort of like this uh, detective who's essentially solving the problems that happen in the town regarding elves and trolls and mm. she's like an elementary school and she's a very capable very intuitive very like a, a strong character lead and it's just her basically kind of going through this life and it's kind of refreshing to see there isn't like that oh my god what is that everyone's just sort of like accepted that fantasy is just a normal thing in in uh their world and in this huh. community and it's so wholesomely charming because it's set in like uh, like this little countryside in England, and I'm a huge Anglophile because my ancestry is very English. So it definitely, it definitely uh, scratched that itch of a nice little wholesome English show. Sure. So I will uh, jump in here. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just going to. I've only got one thing on my list that I really. <laughs> didn't care for. And I think it's significant to bring up because like, you know, I, I, I basically, I, I really want to only want to talk about things that I, they enjoyed or that I think, you know, are significant to bring up because it really wasn't something that I was crazy into. So I basically on, on this, on these lists, I wanted to either focus on things that I like really, really enjoyed and kind of wanted to recommend or things that I really didn't care for and, and not to like, you know, be super negative about stuff or whatever, but more because if I really don't like something, it's, it's significant. Cause you know, we kind of talked about that the last episode, there's not much that I really dislike. I, uh, you know, I might go, uh, it wasn't very good, but I, you know, I, I enjoyed it. Like it's easy for me to find enjoyment and stuff, even yeah. if it's not great. And I, I'll, we're, you know, we're nice fans. We will, we'll give everything a shot. We'll <laughs> give everything some credit. Cause it is a hard task to do a TV show in a movie. Sure. And, um, you know, and then a lot of times, you know, I will still, I can look at something like critically and be like, okay, well, this writing was terrible, but you know, it had this good aspect. It had this good aspect. Mm-hmm. So it's not often when I just like, I just really just didn't like this. So this was the one thing. And I, and I wanted to bring it up because to me it was just, it was <laughs> disappointing was space force um, to the point that, and this is also really out of character for me. I usually will literally torture myself and try to see something through, especially if it's just like the one season, I could not even finish that. I, I, I'd have to look. Um, I think I got through like four episodes because I watched the first episode and I was like, Ooh, I really, oh, I don't know about this. And, but I'm like, okay, can't judge it off of one. And then it was like, every time I watched it, it was the same thing. And it was just like kind of getting worse and worse. And uh, to me, it was very disappointing because the, the, you know, the re, the reteaming of, Steve Carell and Greg Daniels, I was so excited about because obviously like magic was made with the office, but you know, it goes to show that like sometimes you catch lightning in a bottle and it's not for a lack of budget because clearly the budget on this show was freaking insane because they had an all-star huge. Yes. All-star cast. Um, and you can just tell by like the production design and everything that, 
they put a lot of money into it. I, I just think that it was maybe like too narrow of a topical um, subject matter in terms of the story. Like they, like how, how far really can you go with that? You know what I'm saying? Like, um, and yes, now there is like, there is going to be a legitimate space force, uh, you know, and as part of our armed forces, but it was, it was one of those things where it was like, okay, we're kind of, we're kind of in a box. Like it's not broad enough to like really, you know, grow out of that. And so, okay, if that's the case, then you at least need to like have something compelling and with the characters. And I, and to me, there was, it was very weirdly cast and very weirdly written um, where I don't think it, it showed off Steve Carell's strengths. I don't think it showed off, John Malkovich's strengths because they were kind of written in roles that were very, very out of both of their wheelhouses and, and not to say that like they should be typecast and, you know, and, and not to say that Steve Carell needed to be Michael Scott again. Um, but both of those both of those guys have their strengths, have their wheelhouses. And I think this was way too far the other way. Um, and I mean, I mean, that was part of it, but it was also, it was just very like, I just couldn't get invested in it. I couldn't get invested in any of the characters. Um, and, and a lot of it was, I, I hate to say this and I, I love some dumb humor, but it, this was like dumb without like a payoff, you know, like there was, just a, a, a lot of that um, that was it just was not a super redeemable show. And um, I know that I, I'm not, you know, c- completely like speaking for the majority here. I, I know some people that were like, oh, my gosh, it's great. It's it's you know, I'm I'm so glad. Like, I like it just as much as The Office. I, you know, I just personally like I can't I can't say that. And, and not yeah. that it should be compared to The Office, because obviously it is a very different thing, but I, I wanted to like it. I really, really did. And I, I just couldn't. And, um, you know, of course I'm sure there's people listening. They're like, well, you didn't even finish the show. How can you properly judge it? I'm okay with that. <laughs> I, uh, you know, there, there, yes, there is a chance that I could finish uh, that season mm-hmm. and, um, be okay with it. But it was, I was lacking enjoyment in it so much that I'm fine with my decision of not finishing it. Um, So that's, that's my one negative thing I have to say for my list. The one thing I have a question about regarding the whole space force show is, is kind of this interesting example of art imitates life where like this whole thing was basically conceived when Trump said, we're going to create space force. And I almost wonder ridiculous idea. Exactly. And I always wonder if they jumped the gun too quickly, like, cause of course there's that whole topic of like, I wonder, and I've only seen the pilot, I wonder if the reason why nothing really seems to really seem cohesive or solid or lands well is because it was, it's not, it's only based on really a statement that we're creating Space Force and they had to make up everything else around it to where. That's what I'm saying. It's such a narrow focus. Exactly. While The Office is so relatable because there's just decades upon so many different personal stories that relate to these scenarios, relate to these characters. And it makes me also wonder when like Space Force does become more of a physical solidifying thing in our everyday life, uh, that'll be weird when it does. There'll be that whole debate of 
life imitates art where people are going to be like, oh my God, like this show predicted this and this and this. So I'm almost curious about how season two is going to play out in that, in that remark. Do you, do you actually think it's going to get picked up for a second season? I mean, it really depends. Cause if there is enough of a like fan base, as it sounds like there might be, I don't think it'll be picked up, but I almost wonder if it'd be kind of like this cult artifact because when we do have a space force, will people be like, oh, this show predicted this, this show, like, uh, kind of like the, the Simpsons did it. Not that, of course, they're in the same league, but I'm very oh, curious to see I how mean, it's going to age. By no means yeah. are they in the same league. Oh, yeah. I'm definitely curious to see how the whole notion of, because, of course, we have art imitates life, and then how is life going to imitate art? Uh, so I'm, I'm, almost, I'm not going to watch this show, but I'm also curious to see how it's going to age once we actually do have Space Force. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we'll that see. is that is an interesting notion for sure. Yeah. So yeah, that was that was the only thing that I felt like I was, um, r- you know, significantly just disappointed in. Yeah. But let's talk about some things that um, I I did enjoy. Yeah, um, back to the good stuff. Back to the good stuff. So I want I'm going to count this because it came out very late. Excuse me, very late 2019. I didn't watch it until 2020. But Castle Rock season two, I mm. talked about that earlier in the year on a on some quarantine watch list episodes because I watched both Castle Rock season one and two in 2020. So I'm only going to talk about season two because, you know, and I think that's appropriate because it is an anthology based show. So, I, I you know, we can have a, a conversation about a single season pretty cohesively. I loved it. I, I uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to completely rehash everything I said. You can go back and check out some earlier quarantine watch list episodes for that. But it was just a massively well-executed show that did a good job of being anthology-based, but then looping back and tying to some of the things that they established in the first season, which I think a anthology-based series when it's at its best, especially if you are in the world and you're adapting things, you know, of the the Stephen King universe, who Stephen King, as we all know, has basically made a cohesive universe within his, you know, writings, that it's, you know, going to be a huge, huge, like, Easter egg fun wink at the fans when you then, you know, have a connected universe within the show as well, because that is a very King-esque thing to do. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it, you know, having it be this prequel to Misery, which I think is one of my favorite Stephen King um, novels, and obviously there's a great adaptation um, in the Rob Reiner film, but... It's it's a very well known like uh, novel of his. It's a very well known adaptation. So it was it was a it was a fun you know prequel. But I liked that it more played it more played in the universe that they set in season one than it was like a direct prequel to Misery. It was a prequel to Misery in the sense that you have like the Annie Wilkes character, but 
and 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 what happens to her in this season directly plays into misery however like that is certainly not the the main focus which to me i think almost would have been um detrimental if it was like this was also if anything it was like very looped into salem's lot um it was very looped into the body uh, the, uh, other Stephen King works, which I, I like that about the show where it's like, it's a conglomeration of like a, of a lot of different um, characters and mm-hmm. stories in, in his universe. But that's very kin because a lot of those stories were almost in the same collection of short stories, like the Shawshank Redemption, the body in the different seasons. Yes. So it, it feels very spiritually appropriate. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I think that they're just doing really kind of compelling, interesting writing on that show. The showrunners are are doing a great job, and I I just cannot wait for more. It's 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 really 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 well executed and a, a fun extension of the the King universe. Mm-hmm. And I yeah can't say enough good about it. Well, th- well the unfortunate well the thing is like I was reading up. Uh, it got canceled after season two, so it's not getting no! renewed. What? But Space Force got renewed for season two. <laughs> You've got to be freaking kidding me. Are you serious? Is that real? Yeah. Yeah. Because like I, I got in this habit of anytime we mention a show, I look up uh, like, okay, are they going to renew it? But it looks like Castle Rock was canceled after season two. But if we learned Bro. anything, if we learned anything about a show's longevity, it could get picked up by another streaming service. Who knows? Like... Man, I hope so. Gosh, that is, I mean, maybe just, wow, maybe the, see, that's the interesting thing about streaming is we don't have a verifiable way to like measure like, oh, you know, was the viewership for this poor? Um, But I know for a fact, because I've looked into it, like critically, like Castle Rock was a very well-received show. But as we know, that doesn't necessarily mean everything. Like if enough people watch something, whether it's a movie, whether it's a film, whether that's the same thing whether it's a, a movie a television show or a or a you know mini series if enough people watch it they will make it you know so it and continue to make it so mm-hmm. that doesn't you know yeah I, i'm assuming measure- that means that enough people watch space force and i'm assuming that means that not enough people watch castle rock but that's very disappointing to me well, yeah okay. it is because it is interesting to see the whole notion of box office is being replaced by uh renewship of streaming accounts and viewership because like I think those are the two kind of measurements that they have to base it on because like I remember this one interview where uh when the Howeyman came out on Netflix Woody Harrelson said that like I'm amazed by this movie because not because it's like my best movie but because more people have seen this than any other movie that I've done like that whole notion of like it makes me curious to see what's going to become the end-all by-all unit of measurement because in a way, the people have the power to keep a show on through streaming because we are the ones who are viewing it versus like the yeah. critics can always give their two cents and sometimes critics have saved shows. But as we've known in many situations, as just proved with Castle Rock, you can have great uh, accolades and great like uh, critical review. But then if no one's seeing your show, then I think like, but then you see some shows like say the mini project or some shows like, um, uh, uh, oh, or even um, 
likes a community that like because the fan base they get picked up again by another streaming. So I'm also well, curious. And then we've seen that to limited success though, but I think a better example yes. of that would be Cobra Kai, where it was yes. like it already had this like massive buzz just being on YouTube and then YouTube, you know, they're like, well, hey, we're not going to be doing any more, you know, uh, doing our streaming service. We're not going to be producing our own shows. And Netflix smartly, you know, bought it up. And now it's even bigger than it was. Yes. Yes. So. Yes. That, that, is, that is a good and modern example. So, but the other th- the question that I'm curious about is it's almost easy for like another streaming service to pick up a show of a, a dwindling streaming service. But then it's like, I always wondered what's the copyright and what's the rules regarding a transfer of ownership, like from the so Hulu to. Oh, so a, a perfect example of that. And I think Disney's making the best of this, but a perfect example of that would be the Netflix owned Marvel series. Yes. Where there's, so they canceled all those. Of course, we all know that. But they're, they're retaining the rights to the to the actual shows so they they can't be you know transferred over to disney plus and they can't be continued in terms of production however now that disney owns the ips of those characters they can take those characters or even actors who played those characters and Mm. put them in their new properties and the most you know, recent example of that is it has been confirmed that Charlie Cox, who played Daredevil in the Netflix series, is going to appear in the third Tom Holland Spider-Man film, which to me, I'm over the moon about that because I I thought that that was such a disappointment that not all, not that all those shows got canceled because some of them kind of ended up not being super great. Like I -hmm. I was not impressed with um, how some of them ended up, but I think like Daredevil and Punisher, like there was still like a yeah. a, a lot of rails on the track, uh, you know, on the track, um, so to speak. And it was they kind of had to just be kind of forced an ending, um, which was just just disappointing. And there's more story to tell. So my hope is that they keep that they don't alter the the character too much because obviously like mm-hmm. those are characters that exist in a more gritty, hyper-realistic, violent world. Um, so I'm curious to see how they how they bring them in. But I bringing the same actor into the role um, excites me, and I think that there's there's potential for that. But yeah, yeah, I I think that a lot of times if 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 it's kind of a a situation like that where it's more hey. If we hand over the keys to this completely to this other streaming service, we are helping them out. So as much as it's petty that Netflix does that, like it's a good business decision not to be like, oh, yeah, 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 you guys have the rights to it. Like even if even if Disney was going to pay them a bunch of money because, you know, that Disney is going to if if they paid them a fuck ton of money to like completely like bring those shows over to Disney Plus, they're going to make all that back and more. Yeah. At the same time, though, I kind of glad they didn't do that because Disney Plus almost has a tone and a theme 
uh, standard. And then whatever thing that's a little more mature, they put on their Hulu or their other streaming channels. So I almost feel like Daredevil, especially season one, Jessica Jones is almost too adult, too dark for Disney Plus's platform. Oh yeah. I uh, think, I think all those shows are, you know, like, like Punisher is like, they're hyper violent. Um, exactly. So I, I, I can totally get why Disney pride doesn't want to have those, I, those specific inca- incarnations, but I will kind of circling back to the Castle Rock ideas. I'm very, always been curious. Uh, is, will there ever be a, t- a opportunity where someone buys the rights to the Stephen King canon? Like who, like, when and of course, will that be a situation where like a uh, like an Amazon Lord of the Rings deal, like billions of dollars worth of IP, like just swoop it all up in one time? Yeah, yeah maybe because if there is this kind of an arm race, uh, an arms war, like we see with like Disney claiming Marvel and Star Wars, and Stephen King is becoming more of a popular like a uh, uh, topic of, of like media uh, adaptation, it makes me wonder. Who's going to be the one to become the main Stephen King uh, like adaptation uh, releaser? Who's going to be the one to really push out the remakes, the reboots, the uh, spinoffs? Well, yeah, and, and you know that that Amazon Lord of the Rings example, I think is is an example of one that like that is possible with like you know the larger works of a literary figure um, mm-hmm. and. You know, and I mean, we're kind of, I mean, obviously I think it's more of like the specific like A Song of Ice and Fire like universe, but we're seeing that we already saw that with HBO and George R. R. Martin. I, I, you know, I, I don't know if they'll ever like adapt any of his other works, but anything that is in that Song of Ice and Fire universe is like, they're going to put it out. Um, yeah, they are doing, they are doing the prequel series where they have Matt Smith playing a Targaryen and the one about the Targaryen family. So that is right. uh, going to be uh, a thing going on. I know, I know, but I don't know when. Right. Yeah. No, that's currently in development. Um, mm. So yeah, th- like that. That just kind of makes me wonder. Like, that's an interesting notion that 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 could be possible. But if you were to try to do like the in- like like the entire rights to like every like all of the the whole entire Stephen King universe. I mean that that might that might be a bigger money deal than even the the Amazon Lord of the Rings one because keep in mind I you know like they're not well that's tough because obviously like the the Tolkien Middle Earth universe like that's vast it's so vast but we're still covering only like a small amount of books so I think if you're going to try to encompass like the king like you know in the entire King universe, whew, that's way more properties. I, I I think they would have to be a larger, mm-hmm. you know, a larger amount of money. But I mean, if somebody could do it, I, I think like these massive ones like an HBO, you know, that, you know, they've got the money of Warner media behind them or, um, you know, I, I doubt Amazon's going to be doing another like multi-billion dollar deal <laughs> anytime no. soon. Cause that's a huge investment for them. But um, and I don't see it. I don't see Disney doing, you know, um, doing that. Netflix, perhaps. Yeah, I think I think I wouldn't be surprised if Disney does another like huge absorption once they get another influx of like uh, residuals from their new Star Wars releases. Like I wouldn't. So I feel like, but I always wonder who's going to be the next one to be in Mickey Mouse's Thanos gauntlet of power. Who's going to be next? I have Marvel. I have Pixar. 
I have Star Wars. Which one of you bitches is next? Who wants some? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, it's only a matter of time. Like they exactly that's kind of like property buying is uh, it's definitely a uh, a huge part of their business. Oh yeah. Um. So moving on. Uh, now that I'm gonna just sit here and mourn Castle Rock. The last thing I'll say about that is um, for for the listeners, you know, that maybe are hearing this like, oh, great, it's canceled. I was going to watch that, but I don't want to watch something that's just going to just like just be stuck at a weird ending. You you could you could still watch that and and have it be satisfied. You're still probably going to be sad about it like me because, you know, you want to see more. But since it is an anthology series, like it's not like it was left with this giant, you know, unresolved story or anything like that. So I would still recommend watching that. Um, another thing I greatly enjoyed this year was uh, Dark Side of the Ring season two. I've talked about that on this podcast mm, before. Yeah, yeah. Um, really interesting kind of true crime-ish docu-series that's based in the world of professional wrestling and um, as the name would indicate the dark side of the world of professional wrestling and I think it is one of the most intriguing and compelling shows that is out right now and one that I think if you have a foot in either camp whether it be true crime whether it be professional wrestling or you know if you're into both you could have enjoyment out of it. And I, I think like you could go into it just as like, I like true crime stuff and not mm-hmm. know a thing about professional wrestling and still be intrigued by it. And I, and I've, I've heard that from some people that decided to check it out just because they were interested in the true crime elements of it. Um, and I think you could certainly enjoy it if you're a professional wrestling fan, but it's just a really well produced show that is, it is really, well done in the sense of of storytelling and telling these like really like tragic heartbreaking stories and you know just kind of grabbing you by the 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 cockles of your heart and um like there, there's some really like heartbreaking stuff and it's mm-hmm. and i i think in that regard it's um it's a little more intriguing and compelling than a lot of um, true crime stuff that's out right now, because I think how a lot of true crime series and, and, you know, documentaries are, are portrayed are not all of them are done in a way that, that, you know, pull the viewer in, in an emotional sense and, and make the viewer have empathy with like, the the victims uh, of this of this stuff like we almost become desensitized to it like oh yeah so this person killed you know 14 people and like it's it's almost glossed over like the those people's stories the people that died or whatever or you know the and i think that this series does a really good job at like having a lot of empathy in it and, and telling an emotional story, you know, whether it's, you have empathy for the, the subject of the series, whether you have empathy for like the people involved. Um, and I think that not all true crime has that. So I, I, I think that's an interesting, um, 
an interesting element. And uh, yeah, it's just a really, really well executed show that I would I'd recommend. I have a question regarding, because uh, I know when we last talked about something about a story of a famous wrestler, um, the Andre the Giant documentary, there was this whole notion of how involved is WWE to where are they, are how much are they allowing themselves to put in a bad light? And for oh. this show, I'm curious, like, because I know I feel that Andre the Giant doc was way too, uh, I would say, filtered. Uh, how unfiltered is the dark side of the ring? Like, is WWE involved? How much they give? In terms, not of- at all. They're not at all. And like, that's the I think the really intriguing and compelling thing about it is because I'm sure they do not like the existence of it because, oftentimes, since they are like the biggest force in professional wrestling and have been mm-hmm. for the larger part of you know the existence of professional wrestling that they're, you know, it it comes back very often to, you know, stories that don't exactly paint that organization or the people involved with it in the best light. And some of it like has nothing to do with, with WWF because, you know, before, before the nineties, um, there were still, there was still a territory based system where there would be, you know, there was Portland wrestling in Portland. Then, you know, then you have like uh, Mid-South wrestling in the Mid-South part of the United States. You have uh, Deep South wrestling. You have, you know, uh, Calgary Stampede wrestling in Calgary, Canada. Everything was broken up into territories. And you, you know, you were in your territory and you respected it. And then it wasn't until Vince McMahon Jr., who, you know, we, we now uh, all... Uh, no and either love or loathe. <laughs> and, um, and then he was like, yeah, fuck that. I'm not going to do that. And he just, he had the money to go, hey, I'm going to offer all of your wrestlers more money. And so then you're not going to have the talent level. And so you can either, you know, just shrivel up and die or I'm going to buy out your territory. And he just started doing that. So then he started owning all of the video libraries of these of these territories, owning the wrestlers' contracts, and he just expanded and expanded and expanded and expanded. But obviously, you have plenty of stories to tell of you know certain territories or or wrestlers that you know had nothing to do with with Vince McMahon. Um, and and so they tell the, some of those stories, but a lot of it definitely like loops back to him, you know. Um, and yeah, they're very careful, I think, not to do anything that's going to get them slapped with a with a lawsuit. But they're a man, it's like right on the edge, like right on the edge. I, I'm actually shocked that there hasn't been um, a lawsuit towards them because yeah. Yeah, that like they they do tell stories that don't paint him Vince McMahon that is or or that company in in the best light, um, or you know the people that that worked for him. Um, mm-hmm. Like for instance, there's there's one uh, they do an episode on Jimmy Snuka. I don't know if you know who that is. Well, he's one of the most famous wrestlers of of all time, um, and but then he kind of became infamous uh in mainstream the mainstream uh, world because uh it came out not all that long ago just a few years ago that um this 
like 30 year old murder case surrounding him came back to light that he may have allegedly killed his girlfriend at the time. And, Mm. um, and at the time he was acquitted of all charges, but it was, there was some sketchy stuff. And basically like this journalist like dug this, this like 30 year old story back up, got it back in the limelight and they retried Jimmy Snuka and, and found him to be guilty. But at this point he had severe dementia and was like, I think he had cancer too. Like he was, he was not a sound mind was, was dying. So they didn't actually like, they didn't, uh, they, they, they found him to not be like fit to be, to be, um, you know, punished at all. Cause he was about to die. And like, he'd like, like couldn't even like, wasn't even cognizant of anything. Um, but I mean, for all intents and purposes, they've, they've proven that he like, he killed his girlfriend at the time. And, but the interesting and disturbing story that they kind of allude to, um, and of course, like a lot of this is based on, you know, um, recollections of wrestlers, but there's some of the people in involved in this, that there, there is like a, there's potential evidence that, and there's, um, accusations that Vince McMahon helped. He knew of this, like that there's, there's rumors that Snuka came to him like, Hey man, I'm in really big trouble. Like I, you know, I, I, I got a little mad, smacked my girlfriend around. Now she's in the hospital. Cause that's basically what happened is like, they got into a fight. He beat the shit out of her. She died from her injuries. Um, and there is rumors that he came to Vince and because Jimmy Snooker was such a huge star that they used the WWE's, you know, legal team and money and basically like got the investigation shut off. Um, so like, yeah, so they're, they're definitely, they're not holding back the, the showrunners okay. in this, but, um, yeah. it's, I'm curious to see like how much further they could, they could go with it. Um, yeah. they are doing a season three. I just, I just okay. saw that, that, um, they announced that they're they're doing the first episode is going to be about a guy um, named Brian Pillman, and he had a very tragic um, end to his life and his career. So I think, but that that's another one that he was a very controversial figure, and he was mm. at the time of his death, he was in um, the WWF now WWE, and uh, so yeah. So to answer your question, I I don't. They're definitely, it's not WWE controlled and it, they're not, they're not completely tiptoeing around. That's good. For sure. Cause I mean, I, I could definitely, even though I'm not like a up to date on a whole lot of the wrestling history or nor am I really watching a lot of wrestling, I can definitely tell they're very conscientious of their perception because Oh I, yeah. <laughs> whenever I'm at a Walmart, I see so many of these weird animated spinoffs of like the Flintstones meet Wrestler Mania or Scooby Doo meets Wrestler Mania, like and the Jetsons meets WrestleMania. And I'm like thinking, are they really trying to like perceive themselves in this like friendly like light by putting themselves in cartoons because they're afraid of their skeletons the closet? Probably. Well, right now, it, yeah, it's 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 a yeah. PG product for sure. Um, and it's a, you know, it's a publicly traded company. So they, 
they do have a certain image that they want to uphold, but it, uh-huh. it's almost the the one thing that is a turnoff um, about that company from a fan's perspective is that they, if you're an adult fan that's been following it for, you know, for a, long enough, yeah. Some of that stuff is like patronizing. It's like, oh, don't, fucking, don't fucking bullshit me. Like, you know, it's it, it's they, they try so hard to control like the narrative. Um, <laughs> and uh, so it, and it, like that can just get really tiresome where it's like, you know, I we're, we're adults here. But I, I do understand that, you know, they are they are making a show for families. Um, oh, yeah. So but yeah, oh, the. Yeah. The, the, there, oh, there's been a lot of things, you know, that they like they cover another thing in Dark Side of the Ring that they cover is the story about the fabulous Moolah, who was um, one of the most famous female wrestlers, like pioneering. And then all this this really, really bad shit came out about her that she was basically like um, she was like running a wrestling school just specifically for women back in the day, but then would purposely do things to like. If she saw any of these gals getting a little too famous or too much on the rise, she would basically just ruin their careers. Um, and then, uh, you know, also the the really awful thing that she was doing was she was literally pimping these these women out. Um, and yeah, as as a money making front and basically Jesus. said like, hey, and she basically she controlled all their contracts and everything because she was their manager and was just like. I'll fucking ruin your career. Like you need to go, you know, out with this. Guy. Yeah. Awful, awful stuff. And what instead of like hell, instead Jeez. of she was in the WWE hall of fame and instead of like, you know, really making like a, a public facing statement about it, like, you know, denouncing like, um, her. And I mean, obviously this is posthumously. They just kind of just like quietly just, like, oh, she doesn't exist. Very much like they've done with Chris Benoit. I'm sure you know who Chris Benoit is. I think so, yeah. So that, that was a giant news story. So back in, like, I think 2007, um, it, it came out that, uh, and he was, like, one of their top stars. He uh, committed murder-suicide with his his family. He killed yes, his I wife remember. and yes. his, like, tiny son and then killed himself. I remember that story um, now. Yes. Yeah. So they yeah. actually, they, they covered that in the last season of dark side of the ring. Um, and so, and obviously that's like one of the biggest stories they could do because WWE, their approach, they've basically just like expunged Chris Benoit from WWE history. Like he doesn't exist. Just does not exist. It wasn't actually until just super recently that they, they uh, actually put some of his matches back into the WWE network, like, um, in the sense of like, so for instance, if he was like, there's, he was in a WrestleMania main event and for a while there, their, their thing that they were doing was like, okay, that there is no WrestleMania main event for, for this. And it's like, okay, well that is in a way, like we're not we're not denouncing what happened here or, or, or speaking to it at all. We're just like pretending, you know, like it doesn't exist. It's literally taking a mess and then brushing it under the rug. Um, mm-hmm. So I, they, they've kind of backscaled that, but like, yeah, they will never ever talk about him. Um, so interesting stuff, but I digress. We got a little off, off base here. So I'm going to pass no, it no, back to you. Fascinating. I've, fascinating. I've talked enough. No, but- I- 
No, I feel like that's little nuggets of information like that. I find very fascinating because of course, when it comes to the wrestling, you're, you're the expert in the room between the two of us. So I always <laughs> find some insane batshit stories uh, uh, <laughs> from you. So those are always fun. Um, a few shows that I've been kind of checking out lately uh, uh, was this uh, every now and again, I'll take a peek at what Apple TV plus has since they're just starting up like Disney plus they kind of started in 2020 uh, beginning of, of, of last year. So I see because they have so much damn money, I would not be surprised if they do become a bigger player than they, than they could be. They just started off, but I feel like, well, Netflix started off with just a few shows and look at them now. So I'm like, I'm curious of where the trajectory is going to be. But one of the first shows I checked out on Apple TV was uh, Dear dot dot dot, referring to they're kind of these mini homage docs, you could, you could say, where they pick an individual who's had so much importance in not just in pop culture, uh, history, uh, representation, uh, and they read essentially fan letters. And then they uh, cut back to the person who wrote the letter to the, fa- the subject. So they did like Lin-Manuel Miranda, they did uh, Oprah Winfrey, they did Spike Lee. They tried to basically cover uh, not only just uh, like, was this person a male, man or a woman, but they also just more of uh, culture. So like we have, they have one for literature, they have one for women's rights, they have one for, they even have one for Big Bird. And I have not cried harder in my life than the Big Bird episode where you see this boy who uh, is like physically disabled talk about how like you gave me like self-confidence in myself and like, because like you're this big bird and you're always like bumping into things. You're very self-conscious about your appearance and what you're able to do. And that get, and that I felt like I, I can relate to you. And I'm like sitting there, I'm like, Oh my God. Like I've like, it was just something so moving. And like one of my friends worked on that show who lives down in LA. And I asked him like, did you meet big bird? What was he like? Uh, <laughs> because like, I mean, like everyone, we always had our favorite Sesame street character. And so mine was, I was more Elmo and like, uh, and Grover, but I love big bird and like, uh, the woolly mammoth character. So that was, that hit me really hard in the childhood. Like, and it just dripped with tears the entire half an hour of time span. Nice. But then you see some more interesting figures, that I never really was familiar with in other fields of like uh, modern movement and dance. You see stuff in the literature. You even see up and comers like, like um, you see like uh, these young actresses who are in the, who's in the TV show Blackish. Uh, you see like these people. I do feel like they are picking individuals that have the potential for good things, ver- as well as those who have already done a a, a huge amount of uh, good and and inspiration in their career. So that was a very much a heartfelt show that I'm like, oh, this is so emotion manipulative, but it's so effective. (laughs) Yeah, so that was a really nice little kickstart. There's some other shows on Apple TV Plus they seem interesting. Like there's the new Snoopy in Space series. They, uh, because they have the streaming rights for the peanut specials. Oh, interesting. Yeah, they have this anthology show called Little America, which is essentially, uh, ha- like, I think it's 12 episodes, and each one covers a different, like, interconnected, of course, uh, immigrant story uh, of just everyday life in, in America today. So but I think that one I might check out, because that seems pretty interesting. And of course, there's The Morning Show, which my friends told me is good, but 
I feel like that's kind of their flagship that's the one show. With Reese Witherspoon, correct? Yeah, and Steve Carell. I wouldn't be and surprised. Jennifer Aniston's in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I wouldn't be surprised that becomes their flagship show uh, in terms of what's getting renewed, what gets better, like kind of like House of Cards was with Netflix. Um, uh, so, dear dot dot dot, a fun little gem. Uh, like, I definitely would nurse that series. I watch like one episode a day, just because, as like like a podcast, I mean, like background noise. Um, but like, I had to take a break because that Big Bird episode that like oh, <laughs> that just that wrecked me. Uh, uh, another little uh, good show that I just started watching that my friend recommended to me. Uh, it's one of the few foreign uh, shows that Netflix distributes. So, of course, they do an English dub of it, which Netflix, I would say, has done more bad dubs than good dubs. More not in the sense of uh, script translation, but actual voice acting. And yeah, I've seen shit. More- and that and that you might as well just just watch it with subtitles. Exactly. That, and that's what I did. I usually do both just out of curiosity. So I watched the show Barbarians uh, that came out in 2020. They're only doing one. They did what, one season. But I think they got renewed for season two. And I would say I'm watching it. And I'm like, oh, this is sort of like in parallel with the events that go on in Gladiator, where you basically see this barbarian Germanic horde and they're fighting off against the Romans. And so I'm like, oh, this is basically like if like not literally, of course, but maybe think of like that battle in the beginning of Gladiator. Yeah. Like imag- imagine if we just stuck with the Germanic Horde the rest of the movie. That's basically what Barbarians is. Interesting. Uh, okay. Yeah, so, and so I think you would like it for that reason because I know Gladiator is one of your favorite movies. It uh, is my favorite movie. The interesting uh, plot device that they do, which is, of course, a universal story of the notion of someone choosing like which side they want to be on. That dances with wolves, Avatar. In this case, it's someone that was born in the Germanic uh, barbarians, but was raised to become a Roman soldier. And so he goes back and forth on which side he's more devoted to. The mm-hmm. one that really, the one that he is, versus the side that he only knows through growing up in. Right. Uh, so that's essentially the whole like season one is him deciding which side he wants to be on, which I thought was really good. Uh, the dub, it, the dub is passable. But you're right. If you have the attention span, folks, even though it's Netflix, and you want to do something in the background, like just watch it with subtitles. I mean, come on, like people like foreign films aren't bad. They're great. You should all give it a chance. Uh, but Barbarians, yeah, I am just wrapping up season one. It's a pretty good show. Uh, the production design, the fight choreography, the costuming, the effects, stellar. Very believable. Um, it doesn't have that obnoxious like blood splatter CGI effect where you just could totally tell like, oh, that's just something they didn't post. Oh, gosh, uh, yeah. Like the stuff you see in a lot of the sci-fi channel original programming. Like, I was going to say that or like yeah. the, the history channel, like, yes. um, like Re- reenactments. Oh, yeah. God, it's so bad. Yeah, I, and I get it. They probably were a rush job. They can only, they got to work around. Tiny budget, apps. yeah. Mm-hmm. I get it. And like, but it does take me out of it. But I think for production value alone, there is even some mysticism and fantastical sides to barbarians, but it's very ground in reality. There are no dragons, there's no uh, like trolls, there's no like uh, like magical creatures. It's very much, there is dark magic though. So it does kind of play around that notion of it pertains to the- So it's not high fantasy, but it, it, yes. it has fantasy in it. It does pertain to the cultural taboos of really what they believed in in folklore. So there is some, heightened element but it's very much grounded which i like that balance i would say 
So yeah, for those who like uh, period stuff, who likes warfare, Barbarians is a nice little Germanic gem in the Netflix show right now. Uh, and after that, I give it back to you. Okay. Let me pull up my list. So I quickly want to just mention uh, Westworld uh, season mm. three. Again, another one we talked about on a quarantine watch list. But I I, uh, I watched that and really enjoyed it. Really, really enjoyed it. And I had kind of not completely given up on that show, but I was disillusioned after the second season. And, um, you know, I I don't know if the, the third season was as, as good and as groundbreaking as season one, but they managed to write the ship where, I mean, after season two, I was like, dude, I don't know how they're going to get this show back, back on course. Like it, it was, it was looking bleak. Um, but I, I think they did some really, really intriguing stuff. And in my mind, and I mentioned this when I kind of reviewed this on a prior episode, I think they kind of had a, like a, a nice like ending. And then they do this crazy post credits ending where like after the end of like the last episode that clearly speaks to that there's going to be more. I hope that's not going to be a mistake on their part because I think they they could have wrapped things up. But there was just some really, really interesting um, additions. The the addition of Aaron Paul to the cast was very welcomed. I think he played a wonderful role. We saw really good growth in some of the original characters. I was very, very impressed with it and, and quite enjoyed it. They There was still some crazy freaking writing that was like, wait, what? But they did a lot of good job. They did a lot of, a lot of good work on like wrapping up all these loose threads as best as they possibly could from season two uh-huh. and, and kind of getting it more into like a concise story. Um, That's good. Cause I, I still ha- need to actually start that show, but if it's anything like most writings of uh, John Nathan Nolan, the brother of Christopher Nolan is they, their biggest flaw is they tend to not stay within the confinements of the rules they set in their world that keep like pivoting, they keep breaking the rules that's and probably so I, season two. Yeah, that's what I heard. So like even and I and I can see glimmers of that in a few of the uh, collaborations with his brother in the actual movies that he's done. So I, I was definitely thinking, oh, are they going to do the same thing where they kind of they don't stick to the rules they set? They just kind of break their own rules because they don't really know how to get out of it. Uh, kind of like with near the end of, of course, and it's not a Nolan IP, but like near the end of Game of Thrones, where they basically are like, okay, we're going to break the the thing we established just because we're stuck in a corner, just like went completely off the rails, yeah, yeah, and but yeah, impressively, I I, I think that they they kind of reined it back in, so okay, I I would uh, recommend it if you are a person that was all in on Westworld and then kind of became disillusioned after the second season, I. Another show that I kind of was a little concerned with, um, and I, I know I'm in the minority of this, but uh, I think it was the first, uh, well, hold on. I got to look it up now. I want to talk about Rick and Morty. I was very impressed yes. with the latter 
portion of the last season, but I, I, I don't know if it was the first part of season four that I was not into, or maybe season three. I, I hold on. I got to look at it. They, I do. I know they did break it up. And I remembered we talked the first, the first season of part one of this, of the most recent season, I believe was in 2019. And the second part was in 2020. I feel then, like then maybe that's what I didn't care for. Um, yeah. The new, the newer episodes I liked more than the earlier episodes. Because I, I kept forgetting yes. if that was in... Okay. Yes. Okay, so... It, it counts, so yes. They they split that season into two parts. The Breaking and, Bad approach, yes. Yeah, and like you said, the first part was very end of 2019. Then the second part came in like spring of 2020. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, very end of 2019... Half in 2020. I'm counting this as a as a 2020 um, show because obviously they kind of wrapped it up. But mm-hmm. that was one of these situations where I was really not very impressed or into the the first part of season four. I know that I, I might be in the minority. That I know some people thought like, oh, it's so great. I and that's cool. That's totally fine. Um, it, to me, I I just I was. I was just not super into it. I I felt like it was. I felt like it was just a little too on the nose for me. Some of it. Yeah, um, they explored a lot of great, interesting concepts, but I think the execution uh, could have been done differently, and that made up for itself, of course, in the latter season. Right. Um, but I think that yeah, the second half of it, they, the stuff that they were referencing, I think, was a lot more. Um, it wasn't so heavy handed and kind of, I hate to say this. I, I found some of the stuff they were referencing in the first part of the season lazy. Um, but there, I think there was, there was some of it that was, um, a little more subtle in the second part of the season. And I also thought that the meta elements weren't as lazy and they were like really kind of groundbreaking for a show that is so Uh meta and, and it's like, Wow. Okay, you're you're kind of reinventing how you even like portray the the meta stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I was very very you know pleasantly surprised with how that season kind of uh, wrapped up, and I'm I'm curious to see where they continue to go with it because I know they've got same. what like twenty freaking seasons they signed on for or something ridiculous like that. Um, I so mean like, I I'm definitely, I don't know where you go I'm with that, but. I am definitely worried of like Rick and Morty becoming the thing it's making fun of uh, in terms of like TV shows. Like there is that kind of uh, like internet theory that like the reason why they broke it up in two seasons and made the first part a little weaker than the latter part is they're like secretly trying to make some statement on like the current state of how seasons of TV shows are done. And I'm like, that seems too much effort for them to really invest their time in way too much forethought like yeah i don't know about that yeah but but, i mean i would i'm with you my favorite episode of the latter season was probably the vat of acid episode i think they they got an emmy nomination for that one yeah i thought that was i thought that was very intelligently written very simple uh very funny even though i'll admit like it was near the end of the end of the part one in 2019 of their season four season but the one about the dragons it was just so raunchy and weird. I like could not stop laughing at how like absurd that was. That funny, episode. but it was it was 
as for for such a smartly written show, it's like that was the, I think the one episode that I that I actually really enjoyed in the first season. But it was not to me. It wasn't for what I really like Rick and Morty for is like the mm-hmm. weirdly intelligent like existential sorts of you know themes and motifs. That was just fucking dumb. <laughs> You know, exactly, and it was like, yeah. And I think that's maybe that what they were going for is like, we're just yeah, going to just off guard. Yeah. We're just going to basically make fun of all these like fantasy properties that are just, you know, so huge right now and just do something really freaking dumb and, and, yeah. and, 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 you know, gross for the, it was, yeah, but it was, you know, I think that's okay to throw that kind of stuff in, but there was a lot of, I think just, in the first part of the season, just like unmemorable episodes, mm-hmm. you know, or it was like, I, I literally, the fact that I forgot that season four nearly came out near the end of 20, 2019 and early 2020 kind of showed how some of the episodes were kind of forgettable. Uh, yeah. I kind of proved that whole thing. Sure. For sure. Overall, very content with season four. Looking forward to season five. Yes. Um, and uh, one more that, you know, I don't have to say a ton about because we literally did a whole uh, review episode about it was What We Do in the Shadows, season two. Loved it, loved it, loved it. Can't wait for more. That show just is is getting better with the, you know, universe growth. And yes. yeah, I won't, I won't say much more than that. But It's just such I, a great show. I mean, <laughs> season two is the greatest thing I've seen on TV in 2020. I enjoyed it thoroughly. I want more Jackie Daytona. That's all I'll say. Um, uh, but Jackie yeah. Daytona, yes, just spin off show. <laughs> him every day in the bar. Loved it. Absolutely loved it. And uh, I'll kick it back to you. Nice. No, I'm so glad you brought that up because, like, it. I think that might have been like my saving show of 2020 in like mm-hmm. the spring yeah. of the pandemic, where things were kind of like, "What's going on?" And I had this show week to week to look forward to. And I was so thankful. Yeah. So please, please cure my crippling anxiety for a half an hour. <laughs> yes. And it was a fun little ritual that we all kind of watched at the same time together. Yeah. Uh, to like, of course, like to the frustration of watching things simultaneously on streaming where like you get ads, I get ads, we got to pause. Okay. I'll rewind back. Like I'm still working out the best way to like simultaneously stream things with a group of people. And it is a, it is, it's like for better, there's never a perfect way. It's tough. It certainly yeah, is. I, and I know you've been facing the same thing. I mean, like, Oh yeah. I mean, it's kind of a side tangent question. What's been, what's the best uh, method that works for you in regards to like group simultaneous streaming? Do you all have like the shared screen, only one person controls or do y'all have earbuds in you're all watching separate screens? So in, in terms of um, like a regular show, actually, like the only thing I've really done was what we do in the shadows with you. And um, and we didn't we didn't do that with every episode just because like it wouldn't necessarily it didn't work out every week for um, just scheduling. But we mm-hmm. did it for a few and we had mixed success, but it was still, you know, it's still fun. Um, but I have, you know, like joint watched things together a lot for my group of friends that I watch mm-hmm. wrestling with and two mixed results. Um, I have found that the best way though would be to 
well, it's tough with things with commercials. I'll say that right right off the bat. Yes. So Hulu is very, very tough because the commercials will absolutely be different for different, you know, different accounts and different screens. So yeah, I don't know. I, I think unless you're using maybe the same account, but even then, like I, it, I, I think their, their commercial algorithm is random. It seems like it is. Yeah. So I don't know about that. So Hulu's tough, but if you have a platform that is either going to have like simultaneous, you know, commercials or, um, or no commercials. Like for instance, if you could just watch a, a movie front to back or something, I found the best way <laughs> to try to match up the time signatures as, as best as possible is to do something as simple as, you know, either a like, okay, we're all at zero, one, two, three, play. Um, or so going back to like the type of content that I've been watching. So that when I'm watching wrestling with friends, the WWE network is notorious for it when they're doing pay-per-views. So it's like literally going out live that sometimes just depending on your bandwidth and everything that like they'll actually be, you know, up to like 30 seconds off from each other, you know, whereas like this person might have, it might actually be fully live, but then this person might be behind, you know, 20 or 30 seconds. So what, we've found to try to combat that because then that's that actually like with that kind of entertainment where like you could essentially be a few seconds ahead of somebody and then ruin a surprise by just your reaction. We um, have, you know, done things like literally like take the screen and like, you know, take the screen of like your laptop or whatever and then show like the TV of like, okay, this is exactly what I'm seeing. That's this time signature and then have somebody that's behind like try to like catch up and match that. And that's actually worked, um, yeah. you know, to, to, to varying degrees. Yeah. Lately I've been kind of putting my foot down regarding like, depending on like if it's a TV show or a movie, especially with who I'm watching it with. Like I have a few in my bubble friend group of people that I kind of usually see in person on, on occasion, like um, we'll try to watch shared movies. Like we actually went through like all these different like samurai movies that were in this series together called, Lone Wolf and Cub and foreign films are not the easiest um, like method to watch because because a lot of times you want to you want to do live reactions you want to talk with your friends and I kind of put my foot down where I always mute my phone so I don't hear them and they don't hear me and then when it's appropriate like if we're all consensual all consensually paused then we'll talk about it. or we'll just say hey we'll touch base in two hours and then talk about it after that versus talk right. about during the movie because I got so tired of like, my biggest pet peeve is we're watching the same movie at the same time, yet someone's not really paying attention. And then they ask you, hey, what did that guy say a minute ago? And I'm like, the longer it takes me to explain to you what happened, we're missing more of the movie. And I feel like a good audience member trusts that the movie will fill in the gap for itself for you as you watch it. So just give it time, people. That's kind of my, uh, that's kind of been my rule of thumb regarding uh, watching things simultaneously. Right. So I would say after lots of frustrating, like not arguments, but like internalized, like, okay, just let it go. Just kind of like keep watching the movie. And a lot of people just want to watch a movie for the sake of, they want to be around, act as if we're around our friends. It, it gets harder because I don't want to say that I've been more careful of how I curate who I watch movies with, 
but I definitely am more careful of what I'm watching with this person. So like, yeah. I'm not going to give names because you don't, not that you would know them, but like, I would say I have some individuals that I trust more to like watch a movie on the Criterion channel with where we have our phones on like speaker. There is somebody and, right now that's listening. That's like, is he talking about me? Oh yeah. And then, um, scandalous and then spill the tea, Jimmy. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> oh yeah. And then there's sometimes where I'm like, okay, I'll most likely pick this lighter movie that allows constant commentary uh, just because if I haven't seen it, I'm like, dude, let's just watch the movie together. Let's so not have any like. I'm with you. I don't like that if it's something that I haven't seen. But if it's like, it's okay to laugh track something. If like Hudson, if, like I did for Hudson Hawk, and that was great. Like, yeah, if you, you if it. you've seen it and it's like it's a it's something that you know can be you know not taken super seriously or like you you can have like limited investment into it. That's okay. That's totally oh, fine. Yeah. But. Yeah, I, I'm with you. There's like you have to kind of, you have to we talk it out beforehand. You have now. to feel the room for that kind of stuff. Yeah, I also ask people before we watch the movie, like, hey, by the way, since none of us have seen this, how about we like, if we want to say something, we keep it minimal. We wait for a moment where we're not going to interrupt the other person who's watching the movie. Like, wait for a pause in the movie. We kind of set like a consensus just so we don't accidentally annoy the other person. Sure. Or like, oh, by the way, if you have bad worse bandwidth and your movie starts stuttering. Let us know. We'll pause it. And then you can change to a different device. And like that way, there isn't that notion of, oh, we got to wait for Jimmy now. Like, because right. I have usually the worst bandwidth because of where I'm at. Uh, or we just kind of say, hey, how about for this movie, since it's a foreign samurai film, how about we just watch it? We'll text react and then we'll talk, touch base for like a discussion afterwards. We'll usually kind of come up with a nice consensus if there's like more than two people watching it uh -huh. simultaneously, which... That is the frustration is when there's like four people and we're all trying to watch the same movie yeah. on different devices. We'll always get an echo because one person's like, I hate watching my laptop. I want to watch my big screen TV. And I'm like, no, I hear your echo. So <laughs> I have to like downplay my view on my phone because I want to, there's never a proper method. So I've kind of just grown to accept Nothing's it's perfect. Just a weird, it's just a weird time that we're in. <laughs> oh yeah. Where you have and to I don't actually even worry about that. Yeah, and I'm like, do I really want to invest an argument over us watching this silly movie? No, I'm just going to let it slide. But uh, I don't know. But I think, like, I would say I've come to a nice balance. Uh, it's taken me a couple months to find it, but I found it. Nice. Yeah. But uh, that was something I was definitely curious about because I know we both probably are going through that whole, like, because besides our outdoor movies, I know that you have the uh, WWE, like, streams with your friends. So I was kind of curious how – the best way for that to work yeah um yeah and then uh yeah no what we do in the shadows i think it was still your turn before you're gonna pass it back no to me, i already kicked I it back to you because i i, I want to okay, just cool. be real brief about what we do in the shadows because i mean like cool. I, yeah we have a whole podcast on that so i i, I exactly, just want to yeah. just, just reiterate that i watched that and loved it in 2020 same yeah uh another show that i watched on hbo max was i'll be gone in the dark um like my sister's a really big into true crime. So every now and again, she'll recommend me a series that she thinks is really good. She is a true crime murder nut. So like, she'll always say like, you got to watch Dirty John. You got to watch or I'm, listen I'm, to Dirty John the podcast. The, you got to watch. Hold on. The pause in that one. Like she's a true crime murderer nut. I was like, what? Okay, I'm glad you finished that sentence the way that you did. You got enough An of a pause. pause. Like, yeah, true crime murderer Nuts. I was like, uh, okay, good. Good, good, good. Yeah, yeah. Glad we oh, clarified yeah, yeah. that. 
unintended pause. So if my sister's listening to this, no, I do not think that you're secretly a murderer or like a criminal. Like you're just love hearing those stories. Uh, Little do you know, but, like, she's, she always, just, she's just amassing knowledge just to become like the perfect murderer. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like she's my older sister, so she's got a lot of dirt on me. So it's sort of like, uh, <laughs> uh, but for uh, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, for those who are familiar with it, it is based on the Michelle McManera uh, like true crime book that she wrote because she essentially helped solve the case or basically uh, set a, a precedent when she died suddenly for someone else to take upon themselves to finish her work to find the Golden State Killer and they found him. Uh, and it's a fascinating look at the changing realm of investigation because she was essentially a true crime fan herself doing a blog and she would find things that other people didn't see. So it's that whole of how do you solve a case? Do you solve it the same way you normally would? Or do you go to outside sources for a different perspective? And this kind of proved that works because it talked about the notion of, uh, of internet culture helping solve murders in, oh, DNA testing because they discovered, and also that brought up the other notion of is that a phone, something that we should be careful of? Where's the consent? Where's the permission of using someone else's DNA as a tool to solve a murder case. It was used for good in this case, but they see a lot of potential it being like uh, bad because you could easily place DNA. Sure. Uh, there, are all these, there are all these what ifs. And the documentary did bring to light some of that, but overall it was a very fascinating look at a woman and all the work that she did before her passing. And they interviewed her husband, uh, Patton Oswalt. So it was very much him speaking on her behalf, but also, so there was a great uh, voiceover of any audio they had of Michelle, as well as someone else voicing her. So it felt like her voice was still around. It wasn't like someone speaking for her, which I thought was nice. Uh, but it was a great little binge. I do think that true crime docu-series are getting a little long-winded. Uh, I think because of shows like, say... Um, a Making of a Murderer or Tiger King, there's this precedent where we got to do multiple episodes. And I feel like, and as we learned, you want to only, you got to tell it within the length it should be told. You don't need to force it into a dozen episodes or 10 episodes. So I think this case, it could have been maybe in four versus seven. Uh, that's just my take. But because uh, there is that situation of how much are you going to milk about this one fact in one episode? Could this be a 10 minute blurb or could it be stretched to an hour? Yeah. Uh, but overall, I think it's really worth watching if you all like true crime, like I do. Uh, there's a lot coming on HBO right now. Like, and Netflix keeps dropping out more and more every day. I don't know where to start next. But yeah. Uh, but yeah. Overall, I think uh, I'll be going the dark. It's a nice little like uh, watch for those who like true crime docu series. Um. Uh. Like, oh, did you want to add something? I thought you were gonna like signal something, but maybe I just misread your body language. Nope. But uh, perfect. Um. And then, uh, kind of touching base on true crime docu series. I was gonna mention I saw Tiger King. That was essentially the first big binge of 2020 for uh, our culture. And, and, uh, and the pandemic era, yeah. Yes, and it came at the right time. I mean, I'm glad I had that to look forward to in terms of something as fun distraction as something like that I've never heard before. Even though I do remember uh, Joe Exotic being mentioned on the John Oliver show like back in the 2016 election when he was just sort of glimmering as a weird individual and now 
we see the batshit bonkers closet of skeletons, both human and tiger, that he has in his closet. Oh, God, Jay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> I know. And, like, or in this That's case, they're out of his up. closet. <laughs> I know. Like, it, 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 and honestly, no, I'll, be, I'll be. No, the act fucked up. Your joke is fucked up, too, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, honestly, I'm I'm in the minority where I think Tiger King is overrated. Uh, I liked it for what it was, but I, I'm worried it set a precedent for how other docu-series involving true crime should be done. It was basically a reality show where you're like, you would not believe what that bitch told me the other day. Like the, and all the intercut stuff. And I'm like thinking, is this like the real housewives or something like that? Like it's ridiculous. And I, I think is, that's why I made it, it work. It is like, it is, that is interesting that you bring it up. It is like trash TV on a giant scale. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess I'll piggyback off that. I, that was actually, that's on my Dude, list please, too. Please. N- not because of the overall quality of the content. Um, because I, I do think that there's some of it is well done, but then some of it is leaves something to be desired. I don't, I don't think it's going to be, nor should it be, you know, regaled with awards or, you know, like in, you know, it, it looked back as like, wow, that was a really groundbreaking, like just amazing. And it was produced. in some regards, well, but like I, I'm going to say well. in, in like the production of it. Um, but I do think that like culturally it's going to always have like a place in history because of just like the timing of it and mm-hmm. the content mm-hmm. for, for better, or for worse. And this is why I, it's on my list. Uh, it was enjoyable in terms of it, like it's entertainment value. It was so freaking nuts. It, it was. And like in the most embarrassing way <laughs> that it's, yeah, it was just like once you got invested into it, you couldn't, you couldn't stop until you finished it. Um, yeah. yeah. It was like watching a car crash. You just couldn't look away. Absolutely. Uh, and yeah, and I and I don't think that is, you know, for the sake of, of you know, a groundbreaking like amazing product by any means. But it was a very interesting story. So from a storytelling aspect, I think it was was quite good and quite interesting. Um, from from that from that regard, mm-hmm. okay. I wholeheartedly agree. I'll kick it back to you. Um, because you were, yeah, you were and still I, I, talking. And I think overall, like, I think my main issue with how it's aged is the whole what's kind of inspired. Because now there is this hunger for more, like, long-form true crime shock value docuseries. And I'm, like, thinking, oh, geez, what are well, we going to get from this? So yeah. I, th- that wasn't completely, like, new, though. Because I think, like, Wild Wild Country is a good example of that. But that's a good example of something that I think is is better executed and and better produced from like a technical filmmaking standpoint. Um, yeah. But I mean, like the content of that is fucking crazy too. It is. Yeah. But and it also, I would actually, I might even blame Wild Wild Country for setting the precedent of longer I, stories being stretched I out. I think it, I think it was. Yeah. yeah. So I think I'll take back my Tiger King being its fault. I think it's, it's a product of Wild Wild Country, even though I like Wild Wild Country a lot. Like, uh, but I think Tiger King, I, I think you can only watch so much of these characters and I kind of got fed up with a lot of them 
pretty quickly. Oh, none of so them are redeemable. I, exactly. And some I'm like thinking they, some of these people, I really want them to get in trouble and like, cause they're more guilty than Joe exotic in some regards. Yeah. And they are now, they actually are being found out for a lot of crimes because this documentary opened up the case in certain situations. Uh, yeah, certainly. So, so kind of piggybacking off what I said earlier about like other forms of media and like, um, and cultural artifacts helping reopen or get involved in a case in a in a solving a case like uh i think target king's gonna be like a trigger for a lot of these people being found out for bigger crimes because people now have a spotlight on them certainly. and i hope they get found out because they're they're sick bastards yeah all certainly. of them <laughs> uh that whole that whole clan of just cat loving people that they're they're a creepy cult like uh that whole well, they even say that right in the first episode that like you know there's bird people there's reptile people but then there's cat people and they're 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 a whole another breed <laughs> and i will agree that whole topic of power and how they get they feel that power from whether it's a weapon or a resource in this case it's an animal and that's a fascinating psychological uh like situation so i think that's where i was most allured by is really what is the psychological and power play where these animals are involved? How are they play? Uh, how are they play a part in this hierarchy in this culture? Yeah. So I think that for me was the most fascinating thing in Tower King. Sure. Um, and then another little show that I saw that I know you did as well was uh, on HBO as well, Lovecraft Country which I think we both kind of came to a consensus regarding what we, when it hit home, it hit home. When it was at strongest, it was really strong. When it was at its scariest, it was, at its most scary. Like, and I think that one episode, I don't want to give away too much for those who haven't listened to it, but the one with, uh, I don't know how to act it out without giving it away, but just, there was just this one scene uh, with these two little characters that are really creepy. And let's just say that it found this childish little cute song and made it terrifying whenever it would play in the background. I'm like, Oh no, no, not these people again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, but I think it was something so vast, so grand that it almost felt like it didn't quite know how to wrap things up. It was almost, it was like it's ambition. I love and respect, but I also felt like it didn't quite really know how to contain it within the time span it was given. So I was worried that's why I think it might be good that they have a season two coming out. Maybe that'll wrap things up. But then I'm like thinking, where did the book end off at? Like, is it going to extend what the book established or is it still going to like stretch out like American gods did regarding like, okay, instead of one series being one book, we're going to break it up into multiple series. Like there are all these what ifs. So I feel like the show proposed more questions than what it answered. I agree. And I, I do think that it should be recognized for, the cultural topics that it was tackling. Like we are talking about very, very important, you know, issues of race. And we have a level of representation that I think it was astounding. Um, That to me, you know, some of the HBO products I think are leading the charge in, in these like really, intriguing stories of of race uh, especially in the black community you know in like watchmen and and now lovecraft country but 
and not to compare this to Watchmen, but both being an HBO product, again, I think that those are two both really, really ambitious shows. However, I think Lovecraft Country, uh, in terms of the scale that it was trying to achieve and the mixing of media and and this the scope of the story that it was trying to tell it was maybe more ambitious you know slightly because like Watchmen it was very very ambitious but I, I think Watchmen was just better executed from from point A to point B in terms of telling Agreed. that story um and but I, I do think that it should be applauded for its ambition because you know I, I, and that's a weird statement to make because I know it's like you know, sh- should we applaud something for its its uh, ideas and attempt and, versus okay and and efforts like attempt versus execution? Yeah, yeah, and but but I think in this regard, like the stories that they were trying to tell and what they did achieve, I think was very very compelling at, in from a a cultural standpoint, but then also just. F- f- from an artistic standpoint. And we talked about this, you know, this show several times before in the quarantine watch list series. And I was always just very, very struck by just the interesting, like, you know, multimedia approach where, you you know, you're and and multi-genre approach where one minute you have this Lovecraftian, you know, horror scene. And then that goes into this, like, this beat poetry, uh, you know, artistic montage, you know, it's, it's, it's so, so ambitious and intriguing in that regard. So from an artistic standpoint, like I, I love it and appreciate it in that regard. But if, if we're looking at, you know, at it holistic, holistically and the, the story that it told is very disjointed. Um, but I, I do think that it, you know, it took risks and that is, yes. I do think that should be, should be applauded because, you know, I, I would rather see that and then have like, it have it, you know, okay, well it had some problems, but they really mm. tried to do some really, you know, um, you know, really intriguing things that push the medium forward. And I think that they did. So Agreed, in yes. that regard, like, I, I think it should be applauded. Oh yeah, and, and I'm definitely feel like I'm not the person to really talk really about how certain issues were handled because of course I feel like there are better people that could talk about that more than myself. But I think the most compelling thing uh, in the same way that Watchmen did that it brought in terms of provocative questions are how, what is the history of a genre? How does genre play a part in our past? Um, and in this case, we saw with Watchmen, we saw essentially the history of uh, not only racism, but race in the genres of the Western that impact the superhero genre. And in Lovecraft Country, uh, in the same way that the documentary um, uh, Horror Noir about like black involvement in horror films, we see the same thing done in Lovecraft Country, where it talks about really what is the loadedness of this genre? What is its past? And also, how is trauma passed down over the generations. Uh And in some cases, there is, I think this, there is, not I think there is, there is this subconscious level that we're not aware of is there's a lot more of a loadedness in the genre of horror than we're really aware of that we're 
perpetuating that we're uh, unbeknownst unbeknowingly like perpetuating uh, regarding how characters are victims, how characters are depicted, how, uh, and also really what has influenced the genre, especially because we see that H.P. Uh, Lovecraft is a known racist, uh, especially if you read a lot of his books. And so that whole notion of this subgenre of reclaiming back the narrative right. within this realm of horror, I find very interesting. Uh, because it is something dominated by, in the same way that the Jim Crow South is used as a metaphor of essentially like a the dominant idea taking over uh, a community and a culture. And really what is being perpetuated behind the scenes and in the dark. Agreed. Totally agreed. So, yeah, I, I'm curious to see whether that, that goes forward because there is like a, I think for for all the different threads um, narrative wise, I think it has a pretty concise ending. So I, I'm very curious to see what that could go to, whether it's going to be like an anthology sort of series or, or what there's Mm -hmm. a lot, like you said, more, we were left with more questions than answers um, for better or for worse. But again, really, really, really ambitious, you know, undertaking. And in in that regard, I think that was, um, made it a very significant player in uh, in 2020. Oh, yeah. And I think the cast is stellar, too. Like, I would say the lead actor in Lovecraft Country. Uh, let me just look up his name again. I'm definitely intrigued to see where his career is going because he's been in a... Uh, oh, uh, Jonathan Majors. He is in so many stellar movies that have come out uh, in the past couple of years. He was in Defy Bloods with Spike Lee. He was in... Uh, the Last Black Man in San Francisco that came out last year. He's in Lovecraft Country. He's going to be in a Marvel movie. Yeah. Uh, so I really am excited to see what he's going to take on next. And I think because of his backing as a leading man, I think that's will help uh, season two get greenlit is because he's a hot star right now. Yep, I agree. So I'm going <clears> to, <throat> excuse me, I'm going to um, rattle off a couple more here. Uh, mm-hmm. One uh, docu series that I watched that that I that I enjoyed. Um, I mentioned it earlier in the year uh, with on a quarantine watch list episode was the documentary about the professional wrestler The Undertaker called The Last Ride. Was a really um, interesting look at his career as a whole, but specifically this just kind of chasing the dragon of the perfect way to end his career and. If you know anything about that character and that guy, he was extremely guarded and protected. This character was like uh, onto mythic proportions. Like he just would not break characters. So it was a very interesting, um, vulnerable documentary that I was kind of concerned with because it's like, you know, oh, geez, this is going to kind of like ruin this mystique. But it was very, very well done. And I think was appropriately timed, you know, once his career did come to an end. Um, so yeah, very, very interesting, uh, series, especially if you are a wrestling fan. And another thing that I watched that I greatly enjoyed was the umbrella Academy season two. Mm. I thought it was very, very well done. I think that they're really coming into their own with that show. And, you know, again, I 
some people are not going to like this. And I mentioned this before when we talked about this uh, earlier in the year. I I think that, you know, the the source material is good, especially like the, the second book, I think was way better than the first book. Um, but the show just expands that to a way greater level, I think, in a, in a, in a level that I will say if I'm if I'm comparing one to the other. I prefer the show. I, I think the 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 books are really good, like ground level. Here's this here's this universe, but the the show I think greatly expands that. Mm-hmm. It, I definitely have noticed a lot of people say the same thing because I I do think a lot of graphic novels and comics are almost they there's something in the back of their head like okay we want this to be picked up so we're gonna make this a almost a vehicle for someone else to pick up and make a better show. I don't think that was the intention with this though, because keep in mind, like this was like, this was originally put out so far before the, the, the streaming craze. So I, I don't, I don't think so. I think it was, it's just purposely a very like you're dropped in and you don't need all Mm -hmm. these extra details. You don't need all this backstory. You're dropped in. I, I think that's the intention of it. Um, okay. So I have to disagree with that, but specifically just on, on timing alone. Now, could it have been an effort to like, well, maybe this could be made into a movie. Now you may be correct in that regard, but in terms of like a show, I don't think that was the, the, yeah, the I think I, I should have re- uh, rephrased that, uh, in terms of a, a, get a big scale adaptation. Uh, sure. cause and perhaps I, that was. I definitely, cause I have been no- reading a lot of graphic novels lately that have come out in the, the past five years that there is a sense of like oh I could see that they're hoping that this will be picked up with this person in mind like uh like uh, the old guard for example was in a where like you're reading and you're like okay this is clearly uh something that's relatively adaptable for to do a different medium but uh I'm very eager to start Umbrella Academy because I've heard nothing but good things and I'm I'm hopefully I can narrow it down and just start it like just shoot the gun just start it but then something always comes to my peripheral. I'm like, should I start this now or this or this? <laughs> um, and then a, another thing that I watched that um, I thought was absolutely stellar was, uh, well, The Boys Season 2 technically was a 2020 product, but I watched all of The Boys in 2020. Um, but if we're talking about just specifically Season 2, so damn good. So damn good. The acting in that is just absolutely incredible. And the, the things they're doing with the genre is just so innovative and so refreshing. Uh, you know, the stories that we're, we're telling in, in this, in the midst of this, just what, you know, we are living in like the superhero, you know, genre era and so it's like, it's a bold, it's a bold, bold move. And also, you know, presenting a like graphically hyper-violent product, it, it, you know, it, it just goes to show like that it's extremely well written and well produced um, that, you know, people can see over that because the, the, the hyper-violence is such that if it wasn't, so well executed in every other fashion it would just be like oh this is just a gore fest there's nothing there's no substance to this because it is like Mm -hmm. so over the top in terms of his violence um but i but again 
that is part of the commentary that they're they're trying to to portray is like that you know even though we're going through and not making it obvious by like, you know, Captain America punches somebody and their head fucking explodes. Like we're not doing that, but it's like, yo, you're throwing somebody through a fucking building. Like these, these superheroes are killing people left and right. Like, and you know, we're just, we're not, we're not showing confirmed deaths. So like, that's another layer of this commentary that I think is just so interesting, you know? And then like when you have like a Zack Snyder, uh, Ben Affleck, Batman, and he is like, obviously killing people people lose their fucking minds like oh batman can't kill people like what that's not batman you know or superman breaks zod's neck uh in uh man of steel and then oh that's not my superman like that's that's completely bastardizing the product and it's like now okay but so what about like uh, yeah, like I said, like we're you know just using the Captain America thing. Like, okay, he's a, like a white meat baby face, just you know super clean cut. But it's like, bro, you're like, there's no way that these just standard humans that he's just beating the shit out of are not like either dead or permanently maimed. <laughs> we're not thinking about that, you know, because it's like it's it's we're just suspending our disbelief. But I, I love that the boys goes to those level of details, you know. And then we're also like we're tackling, you know in that same, uh, IP, we're tackling, you know, things of the Me Too movement. We're tackling racism. We're tackling like nationalism. Like that, that's the, the biggest thing is like, oh my gosh, like if you're watching that and you're not picking up the obvious parallels to what are going on, what's going on in our society right now, you are missing the point. So yeah, I just think it's a very, very like, intelligently written show that has a, a lot of great social commentary um and also just like a commentary on entertainment and genre which is um i think just really really fresh and innovative yeah. i definitely do like that the genres we hold dear are kind of being questioned and challenged uh, like, especially like we see, like, uh, with the superior genre, particularly, because it is the most saturated genre in our current uh, era right now. Yeah. So I like seeing IP, like uh, products like The Boys and in some cases, Marvel uh, and like as well as, of course, Watchmen, like testing those the same way that Watchmen did back in the 80s. Well, yeah, I, I was going to say, like, Alan Moore absolutely, like, wrote the book on this quite literally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um but I, so, but I think like the boys is, is a, is far more satirical. Um, and, uh, cause I mean, that show is really interesting. Like it's, it's at, at all times, it's both hilarious, horrifying. It, it's, it's really got it all. Um, so if you have not seen it, I would highly, 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 highly recommend mm-hmm. it. And, um, dude. I have to just put one shout out to uh, the guy. What's what is his name? The guy that plays Homelander. Let me look him up. Um, the the clean cut embodiment of like a mix of Superman and Captain America. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I I won't get Anthony Starr is his name. I won't get too far into that just for people that haven't seen this and you know I don't want to spoil anything. But he is such a good actor. And that, cause that is a very like provocative, compelling, 
character. And again, I don't want to get too far into like why, because I don't want to spoil anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you have like been consuming any meme culture this year, though, like you probably kind of know like, oh, there's something up with that guy. <laughs> but um, he does such a good job. Uh, I actually saw that he just won a People's Choice Award for his portrayal um, of Homelander. And uh, all the acting in that show is really, really great. But he's like just so far and away, like, you know, deep into this character. It Yeah, it's very, 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 um, yeah, very, very kind interesting. Of a, more of an observation I'm noticing when I'm reading his credits is like, I, I kind of love it when there's like a, a product or there is a archetype that it's so beloved in an American cultural standard and to see it played by a non-American is almost kind of like, I'm like thinking they're basically like breaking down the, we like for instance, cause I know he's New Zealand, but like literally anytime there's like a satire or a genre questioning in something, it's always done by a Brit or a non-American. It's like an outsider looking in. And I, I kind of, I like that cause yeah, it it's basically, yeah. It's very interesting. So, and then I wanted to mention um, before I kick it back to you, I've only got a, a few left here. Uh, very rec- most recently, and again, I don't want to dive too far into this because I don't want to spoil anything. But Mandalorian season two, mm-hmm. Chef's kiss, Chef's kiss. Yeah, we went in, we in, went into a lot of that in our movie episode, which is kind of funny. Yeah, but, yeah, uh, we 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 got off off the rails yeah. a bit, but it, I loved it. <laughs> so well executed. I, I feel like the Favreau, he. Basically, that first season, I think, was a a test run to see, like, how far he could then take it beyond season one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that I, I love season one, but I think that this was way more cohesive and and uh, I think further exp- further explored the rich character development that I think John Favreau is a master of Mm -hmm. like the, there was great character development in season one, but like this man, he just hit a home run with it. It's like a very much, especially with Mando and I'm going to still say the child for people that I haven't watched the child. They're just, wow. Wow. The emotional journey that you go on, just in that season alone is very, very, very interesting. And uh, like, I, man, it's, it is just amazing yeah. character development, amazing world building, you know, and even minor characters uh, like Bill Burr's character, uh, you know, I, I, again, I won't get too far into it. Like he's, he's only in one episode in season one. He's only in one episode in season two, but you have this, wild wild character development it, it it's just very 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 well written very well written and i i think the other mm-hmm. thing that i love is that favreau is doing a really good job at making a collaborative sort of creative place mm-hmm. for other voices other filmmakers you know but then he's he's having recurring people too Um, you know, and, but, but I love that it's expanding. He's bringing in some new people. And then, man, if you told me that before, you know, this season that Robert Rodriguez was going to direct an episode of the show and that it was going to 
completely revitalize a beloved character. That's all I will say to be spoiler free. I, I would have said there's no way like he's not going to mm. he's not going to direct, you know, something in like a, that's a Disney product that like, no, I don't believe it. And, and maybe one of the finest episodes of the season. Uh, yeah, it's, it's so I think he, not only is he is he uh, Favreau is, is is giving a a platform to young up and coming filmmakers, but then he's giving people like Bryce Dallas Howard a platform to like, hey, you've never directed direct some episodes um you know your dad directs like you should do too yeah right and obviously she has a name but she but she has not you know done that side of the medium and mm-hmm. or, or then you mm-hmm. have like a person like a, you know very established like a robert rodriguez but not you know obviously like not known for this type of work so i i just think yeah that's really refreshing and interesting um and yeah the the way that they're also like Telling fresh new stories, but then, and we talked about this on, uh, on part one of this this series that we're doing with 2020 in review, telling fresh new stories, but then also doing fan servicey stuff with like legacy characters and knocking it out of the park is just they're doing that oh, man like it's got it all. I can, yeah. cannot wait to see where that goes because there is a really interesting, I think, kind of. Uh, a cultivation of a lot of stories that were, you know, from season one and two kind of, you know, come to a head at uh, the end of season two. So it's very interesting. And I, I'm, I'm very curious to see where it goes. And I recommend to those who finished Mandalorian to check out the gallery making of series. If you like seasons one and two, it's fascinating to see because they talk about the influences and Mandalorian is definitely guilty of wearing its influences on its sleeve uh, for those who recognize its influences. Uh, and that's definitely, you know, for good and for better reactions, that is its thing it's beloved for and criticized of at the same time, which is interesting. See, I like it. Uh, I, I, I like that, you know, like, let's, let's go serial Western, David Carradine and Kung Fu. And mix that with Star Wars. I, I, yeah, I'm and into that. The first, and the first episode of season two is basically a throwback to Jaws, if you think about it, like uh, with the dragon worm. It's just so like interesting. Uh, and I don't know. I, I, I would say I like its remixing of familiar stories, but I think it's more my end where I'm so familiar with those uh, plot devices used within those types of stories that it makes me kind of predict where it's going to go. Hmm. That's the only downside. Uh, to watching a lot of movies is you kind of know the what's in the fridge. You kind of know what what are they going to the recipes that they have. Okay, well, but just saying that though, mm-hmm. without spoiling anything, could did you really predict some of the 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 things that that happened in this in this season? Well, I knew that they were going to introduce some new characters because my theory for Mandalorian from the get go was it was going to be a vehicle like a Trojan horse to kickstart other things. Of course. And it was almost like everything, like a test. everything Disney's doing is, is that. Oh yeah. And so like, I knew that, okay, this is literally, this is their flagship kickoff show on their new streaming platform. They just bought star Wars. They're going to do probably more star Wars series because they've realized to different results that movies don't have to be the only Avenue to tell a story. Uh, I would say that like I'm eager to see what they're going to do, but what I like 
that Disney's kind of, I would say, breaking its usual rule is it, it decided to know when to stop. Because uh, uh, I think what made Mandalorian season two better was because even though it did do new stories once it had that audience uh, in, in the palm of its hand, is it knew when to end it. Because I would have been more annoyed if they kept going on because there is an extent to how long the story could be told. Well, yeah, because right now we're in a period where like leave people wanting more where it was like, and I'm trying to be very careful and I, I can tell you are too. Um, you know, we... we we came to the end of a, of a, of a one of the narratives in in the Mandalorian, where I, I mean I'm just gonna admit it I'm I'm with you where mm-hmm. it was like okay we if we go too far with this we're gonna be milking and it's gonna be soured but they they stopped it at a point where it was like oh no I want more like which is masterful yeah very masterful and it's it's gonna be interconnected so I feel like that will allow us to get what we want but also room for more yeah and I think kind of to pick it back what you said about John Favreau what I think and of course I feel weird kind of comparing Mandalorian to the newer trilogy but the one thing I do want to compare the both to is I think Star Wars as we've learned through its many incarnations is it's as good as who's helming it because I think the biggest flaw, and the biggest strength that we see in Mandalorian's biggest flaw in the new trilogy is the consistency in leadership and vision. Because, of course, with George Lucas, for example, he was always involved and he knew when to direct and when not to direct. Yep. Uh, and so there was a consistent vision. And as we see with the newer trilogy, even though we can say the consistent vision was in part in some way, J.J. Abrams and also Catherine Kennedy, who, who's the head of Lucasfilms, but Disney is stretched so thin with all the things it's got going on. I feel like Catherine Kennedy can't be always there to oversee things. So that's why it was smart for them to have John Favreau be the one overseeing Mandalorian, because even though he's not directing every episode, he's not writing every episode, he's involved. So there is, I would say there isn't that sense of they're breaking the rules they set forth. Like we saw with the new trilogy where all these different directors trying to do different stories and then wrap up the story as the other director uh, started off with. I think that's kind of the observation I came to notice because that's what Lucas did. He wrote the scripts, he directed the first one. He felt like he was better as the uh, force to uh, like oversee it. But then he knew where he wasn't good in, which could be directing actors, character, and got people to fill in the gaps for that. Yeah. And, Another thing mentioned, I think what was really smart, and I haven't seen the animated series Rebels, but I know one of the showrunners from that and a comment animation director is now directing a lot of the episodes. Dave, of Dave Filoni, yeah, and then he was yeah. he was the showrunner for the pretty much the entire run of Clone Wars. Yes, and now we're seeing those those worlds converge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was smart, smart move because there was a huge fan base and there still is for those two shows. So to see that nice continuity transfer over with the same person, I think that 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 consistency and that um, I would say shared vision is going to save, I would say, the newer miniseries, I would hope. Well, and I think uh, I think that that having a person like John Favreau, who's very good, I think, as like a front to back holistic type of storyteller so uh so closely collaborating with somebody like dave filoni who on the clone wars the entire like you know crux of that series is like there is this overarching story but it is based it's serialized like each episode is its own story and has its own like 
moral theme. And that, that, that is like the crux of the whole entire series. And I've noticed that like the Mandalorian is a perfect melding of those two where, where there is this like mm-hmm. overall, like, you know, overarching story that, you know, I feel like Favreau has set this kind of template, but I think Dave Filoni's strengths are really into like, what is the single story we're going to tell just for this one episode? You know, what, how is Mando, how is Mando going to help somebody in this? What is he going to learn from it? How is he going to grow? Mm-hmm. I, I think so. Yeah, it, it is a, it is a really um, good example of that because sometimes the big gigantic, like big picture style of writing leaves a lot of fluff and a lot of filler episodes. So I think this was this season, I think maybe even more so than the first season was a, a really good melding of those two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm, I don't know. I definitely do agree with a lot of my friends who are very critical of Mandalorian, like the ones who think it's like really bad star Wars. And I feel like there is that mm-hmm. sense that we forget about star Wars is you kind of almost need to just, you got to just drown yourself in the world. I think that's the best way to enjoy Star Wars is to, I think at this point in our internet culture, we know the tools that were used. We know the narrative devices. We know the recipe and what is in the recipe. And I I don't think Star Wars is this holy artifact that people put on the high pedestal that it is. I feel like why compare it, why criticize a newer incarnation of Star Wars for doing the exact same thing that Star Wars itself is guilty of doing from the beginning? Because uh, it seems like you're lying to yourself thinking that Star Wars is like this. Well, it is, but it, it really isn't. And it goes like, back to like what I said in the f- the first episode of, uh, you know, this series that we're doing. Where it's like, I, you know, I, I'm very critical of like how people were. It's, it was a small pocket of people, but some people were saying that some of the things that are introduced in this show, especially this season, are fan servicey. And I'm like... Well, or excuse me, I, I was saying that um, when people were critical of, I'm sorry, I, I'm totally mixing up what I was saying, where people were critical of some of the things in the most recent films were fan servicey, but then were praising this show for doing the same thing. And I'm like, really? Like, yeah, <laughs> yes, maybe this was better executed, but like, it, it's just, it's hypocritical, like where it's like, oh, I'm, I'm going to pick and choose like how I'm picking on these things. Like, eh. exactly. I, yeah. I, I'm not, we're, we're never, you're not, it's, it's, it's all, I'm sorry, God. Oh, no, I was just going to say, because uh, I think we were both, <laughs> we were trying to, uh, I definitely wonder, uh, like in the Solo movie, I almost wonder, and a lot of people felt the same way, is like, how would a Solo have been if it was like same cast, same director, but then miniseries approach versus all concentrated in one movie? Hmm. I always wondered, would have it had the same reception that Mandalorian has now? Uh, like, because I think, of course, Mandalorian, I think the reason why they decided to go with the TV show route, realizing is a lot of people what they liked most about the newer movies, they felt like we didn't get enough of it. There wasn't enough of character development yeah, or like, that's an interesting, interesting point. So I think that is smart that the Disney did decide to do a, uh, short limited series approach to a lot of their stuff because that's what worked for rebels and clone wars right. for varying results. So, uh, how many more do you have on your list? I have, uh, the only ones I have left, because we just talked about Mandalorians, I just have Queen's Gambit and Last Dance. Oh, those are the only ones that I have left, too. So, yeah, let's, let's just right. kind of collectively talk about these. Um, so, uh, Last Dance, I think, would be my favorite 
docu-style, you know, anything that I watched this year. Um, Mm -hmm. Because, you know, it's it's not a documentary. It's definitely a docu-series. And I think it was... um, You know, that's interesting. It was such a cultural, like, phenomenon that, Mm -hmm. of course, like, it... It ha- it brought along as many people praising it as as many at, and also as many detractors to it, um, which I think is it's going to happen with anything that's like extremely like you know culturally relevant or part of the the, the current zeitgeist. Um, I was amongst you know the group of people that loved it and was completely encapsulated by it, mm. and. Um, Dude, I like that so much that I, I've actually like been kicking the tires about like, should I watch that again? <laughs> I, um, I, I just, I just really, really greatly uh, enjoyed it, and I thought it was just a really good like, um, a good capture of like culture from you know the, of of this like this period of time in the '90s. It, it is this really like interesting like time capsule. Um, you know, if you will. And, and how, I think they did a really good job at like it converging, like how, you know, sports affected music and music affected sports and art affects sports and sports affects art and fashion and politics. And, you know, and and how these are just like, it's, it's just this big, like sort of, um, cultural osmosis, if you will. Uh, Mm. and, I, I, I enjoyed that. I think the most about that. And I think that that's what made it so accessible. Like you don't, you didn't have to know a lick about basketball. You didn't have to know a lick about the bulls specifically to still like find some enjoyment in that. Um, and I think it was just a really interesting story that everybody that was sports fans or, you know, had knowledge of Michael Jordan, like specifically wanted to wanted to see they wanted to see that like let's get into some of that you know let, let's let's take a peek inside that closet yeah. you know let's and, dissect our idols yeah and 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 show them in a more vulnerable light um and i think that this you know for the most part achieved that um and yeah i just thought it was just extremely well produced i i loved the the storytelling of it all where like they didn't tell this a to B linear story. They, they like, you know, went back and forth in terms of the timeline. Um, and I think that that made it cause what wasn't it like 10 episodes? Like it was pretty long. Yeah. I, I mean, I think 10 or 12, it feels like I want to say it was, a, it, it was an even number. It, it made it, I'm going to look it up. So we're, we're speaking to this accurately. Um, to me, it made it. It was ten. It was ten. Okay. Um, yeah. To me, it made it still like I, I, I was still invested, and I, I didn't feel like it was too long winded because it was it was kind of it was moving around a lot. Whereas some of these, like mm-hmm. you know, we talked about like like a Tiger King or. Um, wild wild country where it's telling more of a linear story and then it's deviating only really to like in a in a fashion that feels like it's trying to extend its life you know what I mean where I, I didn't feel that as much with last dance um, maybe I, a little I, bit but 
Yeah, I my my one critical comment that I remember making when we did our last dance episode was I felt like it. I did think it was too long, but then I thought back more on it because I believe a documentary like you would a movie or TV show. You 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 basically you don't need to make it fit a formulaic episode approach like everyone else does. You basically tell it in the length it needs to be told, and I remembered loving this other do- long form docu series uh, OJ Made in America. For the same reason I was criticizing. So I'm like thinking, oh, well, now that I think about it, like you said, regarding it's an encapsulating of a time period and era, that's a lot more lengthy than just saying, oh, this is just a documentary about Michael Jordan or a documentary about the Bulls in the 90s. Right. If you're going to encap, if it was just about the Bulls in, the, in that one era, then that's probably maybe like four episodes right there. But if you're talking about the impact, the cultural leading up to it and the influence uh, to now, the same way that OJ, Mer- OJ Made in America did, because uh, they did a short form and a long form version, hence why they were eligible to win Best Documentary at the Oscars, right. as well as an Emmy for Best Docuseries. So that's how they got around that. Yeah. So I was expecting Last Dance to do something similar, but I like that they didn't because their thesis statement wasn't Michael Jordan. It wasn't the Bulls. It was basically about this artifact that was, like you said, this osmosis of of pop culture, sports, and idol worship as well. Well, and it's it's interesting that like the the common thread. I think this is also what was very well well executed in this. That the common thread is this very last championship season that they have mm-hmm. with this core group of individuals. Of, you know, whether it be the players or or Phil Jackson, the coach, uh, or even the management, Jerry Krause. Um, that the, like you had this just this last final like perfect you know melding of all these all these people and elements um but obviously then we're still we're telling the story like that's the thread of it but we're telling this story of not only you know Michael Jordan being a huge figurehead of it but we're telling the story of Dennis Rodman we're telling the story of Scottie Pippen we're telling the story of Phil Jackson Steve Kerr all these important figures. And I mean, and then even like, you know, with the Michael Jordan's um, threads, we're going all the way back to his high school days. So you're telling like a 30 to 40 year story, um, you know, like it's, you're covering huge, huge massive ground. And if, you know, and even obviously like they, they don't get too far into his high school playing days or his college Mm -hmm. days. But I mean, he, he signs with the Bulls in 1984 and they covered pretty much that entire period. And then, you know, that last season is 1998. So, <clears throat> excuse me, you have this 14 year period. So when I think about it like that, mm-hmm. where that's the heavy, the heavy part of the, the narrative, the 10 episodes doesn't seem like, obviously that's long, but it doesn't seem like, oh God, like they totally, yeah. like th- they filled it. This was five episodes of filler. I, it didn't feel like that. Um, yeah. I th- and I think that goes back to they were consistent and they stay within the parameters of their thesis statement. They didn't try to like force something to make it work. Like a lot of documentaries are kind of guilty of where they try to either be too much, but for marketing sake, come off as focused. Like we're going to do it on this subject because that's what's going to get the audience. But secretly we're just going to milk it because this character is really a little more limited than we expect them to be. Or, I mean, I think the last dance like with a lot of documentaries, there's so much footage that really they could have gone so many different directions because oh, yeah. the, 
the footage is so vast that, I mean, there is multiple different documentaries they could have made from that. They could have made like a whole, like expanded universe, uh, interconnected universe of documentaries if they wanted to. Yeah. And, and like, I mean, and I think that was, I, I'm very eager to see what is going to be kind of the next of not necessarily an interconnected anthology approach to documentaries, but what's going to be the byproducts of this to come out. Like, cause nineties are now becoming kind of the nostalgic thing right now. Uh-huh. So I'm very curious to see what's, what's going to be the uh, echo effect, the not echo effect, but the um, ripple effect of how documentaries are going to be done. Uh, especially cause I think I'm with you there. I think this is the best docu-series that I've seen. Um, I'm open to being proved wrong if there's something else even better, but in terms of if we're talking about what I think the best one was and, and as from someone that didn't really grow up in that period of the nineties, I mean, I, I did, but I was way too young to watch sports. Um, just the fact that I was engrossed in a sport and an era that I really am not too familiar with is a sign of the quality of documentary. And I want this to win over Tiger King for the Emmy. So fucking bad. I I think it will. I think it will. will. I mean, if there's any sort of integrity, like to, you know, the the people that are voting on this, like, like, dude, those are, those are night and day difference in terms of quality. Um, And just, storytelling um because i mean let's let's be honest let's be honest the tiger king is like the most compelling stuff is is just is just merely the characters it there's because like they're they're really doing like the the storytelling there's there's not there's there's not a whole lot of there's not a whole lot of the filmmakers you know, dredging this story up. It's just these crazy people. And I mean, like also, uh, Joe exotic, like he filmed all this shit. So it's like, they really had like a story that they just had to kind of just put into a, uh, a clear mm-hmm. and concise, like, you know, product. Like, it, so I, I think it's, it's different. And the argument can be made that, Oh yeah, well, I mean a lot of, you know, what's going on with the, with the bulls, like, you know, like there's a ton of like ESPN footage to pull from, but, those those sit down interviews that they did, you know, uh, f- over twenty years later, like th- you know, let me tell you, obviously, like Michael Jordan is so guarded about his like personal life, his image, and everything. So that was, I, I think it, yeah, just it's a whole other class of storytelling. So yeah, I mm-hmm. I'm with you though. I I would be like, are you kidding me? If that, yeah. But, um, yeah, uh, yeah, I, 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 I thought it was, um, really, really, really great. And, uh, you know, it was interesting that there was, it was so culture based and then it became a cultural phenomenon it, itself. Um, you know, and I, I know you mentioned this when we did the, the podcast specifically about this for, oh, which, uh, the listeners, if you haven't checked that out, make sure you do. I think we did a good job with it. But you mentioned like, hey, you know, I think this is like a Tiger King benefited from this pandemic that, you know, and that the timing of it could not have been better for Netflix and ESPN. And I, and I have to tend to agree with that. I, I do think that it still would have been a cultural phenomenon, but it helped out that nobody, you know, everybody had no other choice than to sit down and watch stuff. <laughs> so 
Um, and then, uh, unless you have anything else you want to say about that, I think we should transition into the Queen's Gambit. Agreed. Which, um, in terms of television or miniseries, I, I do think that my, you know, favorite, um, episodic show that was, you know, multiple seasons, I, I think was probably the boys, but I, I think it just in terms of a, um, a fictional based narrative that was done in an, in a, uh, long form miniseries or show. I think Queen's Gambit was hands down the, the most fantastic thing that I saw. Um, you know, and like, wow, the, the stories that have come out about um, the the per, the production of that are just fascinating. A 30-year journey to get that made. And, you know, then it, it was even at one point supposed to be a film and it was supposed to be Heath Ledger's directorial debut. Mm-hmm. Um, what a journey. What a journey. And uh, I... Uh, I think everything worked out the way it was supposed to work out because it is one of the finest miniseries I think I've ever seen that tells a, an amazing, you know, multi-year story of this young woman. And I think you don't have to know a thing about chess to find something in this because I think if anything, more so than a story about chess, it's a story about excellence, genius, and, you know, fame. And, and also, I think, like, what it's like to be in the mind of, of someone that is literally the best in the world at what they do. That, that, that is the, the top percentage uh, of, of this, this thing that they do. And that is that is a frame of mind, and a um, a burden that the majority of us don't have to deal with, and we'll never know. Um, and I thought that it was it did a great job in in portraying all the all those things, both the good and the bad. And it was, I think, this this amazing vehicle for this coming out party for Anya Taylor Joy as well. Um, because obviously, like, she has had a lot of buzz behind her, but like, dude, the sky's the limit for her, I think, now. Like, th- this was. Yeah, this is her breakaway, breakthrough role for sure. Absolutely. Um, and I, I think, you know, th- this is going to be the vehicle for her now to be like the next, like, big it star. I, I-, I can see her, yep. you know, getting-, getting put up for motion picture roles that could will probably yield her. Academy Award nominations, if not wins. Um, she's an extremely yeah. talented young lady um, that took on, uh, I think, a very complicated character. Uh, and, you know, we, we kind of mentioned it um, in a prior... And the Little Women talked about a, the, compli- the complicatedness of playing different ages. And I, I think she knocked it out of the park uh, with that because she very much played a 13 year old, like a 13 year old. She played mm-hmm. a 21 year old, like a 21 year old. Yeah. And, um, I think the other thing that was, uh, that's interesting about this, you know, film is it, it's, it goes over, you know, basically two different decades, but, and it's, a, it's a great period piece in the sense of 
it really does a good job of telling the cultural story of what was going on during these time periods, politically, socially. Um, you know, we delve into gender politics. We 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 delve into um, into world politics. It's it's very very interesting. They're 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 talking about a lot of things in it and chess, the 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 game of kings is the is kind of the 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 core of it. Um, and is a great theme and motif for how this young lady's mind works. Um, and yeah, I I thought it was. Absolutely fantastic. Very well done. And if, you know, if we've offered some, you know, perhaps critical feedback with some some of these um, series that maybe there is some fluff, this was tight and concise. Like, what, mm-hmm. seven episodes? Let's let's look that yep. up. Yeah. Seven episodes, I want to say, yeah. And it, it did a good job in rewarding the audience at the end of each episode. It made you want to play the next one. It made you remain invested. There wasn't that, mo- there wasn't like that down period. And if there was, it was usually in the middle of the episode. Or in the be- like they always found a good way to resolve uh, the situation that happened in the beginning of the episode. Uh, I mean, it's hard to really say where Seven the weak episodes. points would have been. Yeah, because a lot of people think the weaker points in the whole arc were like, okay, once she gets older, then it gets more exciting. But I found the childhood episode very uh, compelling and very like, I would say, I would say that there was a lot of uh, like, I would say the childhood stuff became more fascinating once you saw her as an adult and you kind of see what brought up to that moment. The flashback sequences reminded you of the importance of that moment. Uh, so I think it did a good job in reflecting back in, uh, reminding you of stuff. Well, so the editing was a stellar, uh, Im- important factor as well, for sure. And, and I think that, that, that part of the story is so important because mm-hmm. it, it shapes how idiosyncratic her mind is, um, and her mm-hmm. behavior is. And I, I think it also, it, it, it's such necessary backstory in terms of her genius, her addiction issues, her, her mental issues, her familial issues. It's, it's very, very necessary. And to me, I I think like it was this awesome origin story of somebody like to, to, you know, borrow a connection to, you know, our, our dominant genre that is, you know, superhero and comic book films um, or, you know, shows for that matter. I think like it was, if you liken it to that stuff, it, her finding out that she was this prodigy in chess is like this kind of origin story of like, she is this completely, you know, lost in the world, little girl and finds this thing that takes her to unimaginable places. Um, so in that regard, I, I, to, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't find that any of that was boring. I thought it was very, very compelling. Exactly. Yeah. Cause like a, a lot of the quote unquote, the origin story parts in most uh, stories, usually of course, in contrast, the whole like overarching story could be argued as the weakest, but you're right. It is, it is necessary. It is important. Uh, without it, we wouldn't really have much investment in the character as they get older. So I feel like, I get it, but at the same time, though, without it, 
it deflates the whole thing. Uh, and it was, and I'm go ahead. Oh, no, and, and like, and overall, I think the child actress did a stellar job as well for the limited amount of time she was on the screen. Uh, you see a very, I would say like, she's a good actress, but then the director knew how to direct the actress as well. And there's a lot going on with just the expression and just her face alone, which is very subtle acting for a child actress. Well, yeah, because I mean, really, like, as a young lady, um, it takes her a while to to really, like, come into her own and, and be confident and find her voice. And so as a really little girl, mm-hmm. like, she, you know, she's, she's kind of thrust into this orphanage and just doesn't really have her voice or, or, or confidence at, mm-hmm. at all. And so, yeah, there is a, a lot, it's not super dialogue driven. A lot of it is like based in facial expressions, like you mentioned. And yeah, I agree. That was a, a, a super strong point. Um, so I, I was going to say uh, one thing, mm-hmm. backing off what you were mentioning. So with the, um, the initial episodes of like, of you know her being young and everything and kind of that building to this crescendo of like the more exciting stuff as she gets older i think that stuff was necessary as but you know like her as a really little girl or her even as like when she's a 13 year old and that's really when we get introduced to anya taylor joy as as um the lead actress it's all necessary and also like telling the backstory and, and the lead up to the, basically the, the climax or finale, if you will, because we have these, these subtle, subtle bits of exposition, um, and foreshadowing, you know, we have mention of like the Russians, like they're the best players in the world. And, you know, and, because it's basically, ultimately, it's you know, it, it is this, it is this chase for perfection for her, and chase, mm-hmm. and this chase of excellence. But it's also this. It also ultimately becomes this like chase for this kind of. It's veiled as like a patriotic, like uh, sense of pride, and like she's just merely a vehicle, and is 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 writing that out just to achieve her own goals but it is like it 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 basically is this you know ultimate like face off against the um the current like example of perfection in in borga you know mm-hmm. the 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 russian player and he is he i liken him as he's the white whale and yes. you know it, to, to her ahab where she it's just this continual like thing hanging over her head that she, you know, because really like she doesn't find like peace. It doesn't seem like until she gets to that point. And I, and I, and I love that that's kind of where it ends. Um, rightfully so. Yeah. Cause what are you going to do after like, you're so young and you finish your, essentially your life's mission, your life's ambition, where to go from there. Yeah. And it did kind of bring up that, burden of brilliance issue when it comes to prodigies where essentially you're given the keys to the kingdom, you meet your goal and what next? Well, and then that's why I love that. Then they, they end it with, she goes back to playing for fun, you know, exactly, with, yeah, with, with those like, people on the street. 
that is the sad reality of a lot of people that pursue perfection is once you at least perceivedly uh, reach perfection, you almost lose that passion. Like it's almost like I, and I've been in some situations too, where it's almost like the chase is more what you love in this thing and, and, than the actual thing itself. And oftentimes more rewarding, you know, it, it goes back to like, I mean, this is a very grandiose um, analogy, but you know, it goes back to like when uh, Alexander the Great had finally, you know, um, f- finished conquering, and he, you know, in the in the story, um, he wept because there was nothing else to conquer. And yep. uh, I liked that this was not that story of like, if anything, she's finally whole. Um, yeah. You know, which we don't necessarily see as much with these, like you said, these uh, burdens of brilliance or stories of perfection, where usually when when the journey comes to an end, it's like you know, idle hands, man, that that's, that's usually the bad time. Um, and it was interesting mm-hmm. that like that, if anything, what was more detrimental to her was the journey. So it's an interesting story in that regard. Yeah. And we did see some allusions to what could have happened. Like, you know, what happens when you lose that, lose that passion, you lose that drive. Where do you, do you uh, go back to school? Do you try to restart another career? Cause we did see some, even with one of her friends who had kind of admitted that like, he doesn't love the sport anymore as he used to. Right. Uh, and so he, his, his life goal becomes helping her uh, like get her life goal. Achieve so her I dream, feel like yeah. there is that kind of subtle hopefulness that I really appreciated because there is like the expectation of young people, uh, especially those in your early mid twenties in our culture where you've got to almost be at that point or start at that point right there. But really, I don't know. It's sort of like, I'm kind of comparing it to another movie uh, that I, I probably have seen, but I've seen a lot of movies that talk about the whole, like, I don't know, sometimes you just got to roll the punches. You got to just adapt. You got to be flexible because you may not have your plan A workout. You may not have your plan B workout, but you can really make up your own plan. Like nothing is as binary as it seems. And there's always room for other interests. There's always room for other passions to fill the void. And once you outgrown or exhausted that passion, I mean, I've gone through so many different like collection phases, so many hobbies, so much money on a, what I thought was a interest but then almost the almost the oversaturatedness of that environment made me lose that enjoyment. Like, so th- there's just, there, so I feel like I like hearing those types of stories because I don't know. I think the negative outcome for this character would have been, she just kind of goes off into the corner and just feels hollow. Uh, and that is a very dark place for a lot of people who have been in there. Right. Or, or the pursuit of, of this, you know, this goal and how like, you know, she had to develop this very self-destructive lifestyle to, to, um, to basically accommodate like the journey of this goal. Like this could have been, you know, a, 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 um, a a very tragic story where like at the height of her greatness, she, you know, ODs or something like that. Um, and so I, I liked that. I liked that it was, she had to finally like separate herself from her vices and, um, from her past issues and then like kind of just become, 
um, become okay and at, at, at peace with with herself and with her her past, mm-hmm. and then also confident in her abilities. Like I don't need mm. I don't need these drugs to to help me out. Um, uh, yeah, I thought that was very interesting and, and and a different sort of story that we see of you know of brilliance because usually brilliance is is often um uh often you know paired with um mental health issues and usually it's it's tragic endings um and so i i liked that this was this was a much more satisfying (laughs) yeah um you know end of a story for her yeah it didn't go in the same trajectory as the real bobby fisher that the character is based on which right I, I like that a lot. Yeah, you know, and and I think um, an, another nice thing about that is obviously, you know, geez, the, where the story ends, she's still got her whole life ahead of her. She's in her early 20s. Exactly. And, yes. And so. The sky is still the limit for her. Right. And, and so w- we don't need to see beyond that. Um, but I like to think, and this was, this was, I think, a really nice way to end it. And it wasn't in a like, oh, we're going to just fluff it out to make people feel good. Like it, it seemed like a really well Mm -hmm. ended story was, I I like to think, you know, she, she sits down with those gentlemen in Russia, plays a game and can go back to just pursuing chess for the love of the game. And, you know, went, went on and, and had a happy life. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and I, I love, I love narratives where we can kind of at the audience, we can kind of pick up and imagine where, where we think the the characters would go. Yeah. And we trust that the character has learned enough and has had to ba- make good decisions from here on out. We don't need that reassurance of, Oh, she got married. She settled down. She uh, went back to rehab. There isn't that. We don't need that really. If the character in the story is well executed. Yeah. And I think the, the only thing that, that, they gave us and that we needed was that peace of mind that like, she's going to be okay. She, yes, that's literally what I thought when that show ended. Yes, she's going to be okay. She's going to be okay. And you're so happy for this character that like she did, she did it, you know, she did it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that was just absolutely wonderful because yeah, they were really stuck between these two worlds of like overly sentimental ending that is like, oh, that was kind of cheesy or, oh, very tragic ending. That was, I honestly, yeah. I think everybody probably would have expected that. And um, it could have, it could have gone the way as Rocky four or could have gone the way as like the wrestler where it's like, <laughs> that's a great, uh, that's a really good, I, I didn't know where you were going out. Like, okay, what, where are we going with this? Um, yeah. yeah, I, that's a really good analogy. I like that. Yeah, you know, and uh, I mean, even the wrestler has a very ambiguous ending in a lot of ways. But we, you know, we can fill in the blanks very much like we can fill in Mm -hmm. the blanks of this. And we know that like, hey, she's going to be okay. But I agree with you. I'm so glad that it would have been a disservice to the character if we would have been like, oh, she met the love of her life. She had, you know, multiple children. And it's like, that's not her. Yeah. That's clearly not her. The weirdest ending would have been like, oh, she decided to have like. Because she loves all her friends differently. It's sort of like, oh, which one is she going to pick? Like, she, I'm so glad they didn't go in that kind of direction. That would have been so, I think, belittling uh, that she had to settle down. Well, uh, yeah, that would, like I said, it would have been a disservice to the character. Because if anything, the romantic connections she has in her life are really not... They're barely based in romance. Like, the only person yeah. that she really, like, loves... 
you know, is, is the man that ends up being homosexual and they very much end their, their time together as merely just platonic friends. And even the, the, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the guys that she kind of has, like, I would say more of a sexual relationship with than a romantic relationship. It is very much based in platonic friendship first and foremost. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think it's because she is such an independent woman that like, I, I like to think that she goes on and lives life independently. I don't even want to think of her as, as uh, you know, especially like the time period this is settling in. I don't want to think of her as, as a 1960s housewife. I like it. I think that's because to to me, she's like a feminist icon and of that time. So like, you know, I I don't think she needed a man. She didn't need a, a a romantic love story. Um, and I'm, I'm glad that the story didn't really give that to her. Like, obviously, mm-hmm. you know, we see her um, ex- explore her sexuality as a young woman, you know, but the, and that's like that's part of becoming an adult. And so I think it was necessary to have that. Um, but I, I'm, I, you know, to me, I think it, it speaks more to her genius that like dating and boys and stuff like that it barely distracted her from her goal. I think that's, mm-hmm. that's a better, that's a better story of excellence. She didn't have time for them boys. <laughs> yeah. I, I can definitely say that I want to read the book and I Agreed. wouldn't mind playing chess again. That's what this show has helped us do is get back to reading and get back to playing chess. Have you, <laughs> have you heard about like the giant, um, like movement towards, uh, chess and people learning how to play chess and buying chess boards and stuff for the first time since the show oh, came out. Yeah, there's literally is what someone called the Netflix effect where like because of the impact of a show, it increases sales in something. And in this example, it is like the Amazon sales for chess have been through the roof. Yeah. Same thing with the book. But people have also noticed these funny trends where people lose interest and they kind of have short attention spans. So people will probably download the app and then like stop playing it after a few weeks. Because the next thing will come around and focus their attention toward. Yes, uh, that's a, yeah, <laughs> sad but true. <laughs> well, yeah. with that, I think this is a, it's a good place to wrap it up. And, uh, you know, 2020, I think, is going to go down as, um, in terms of entertainment, a very mm-hmm. interesting year because we were delivered some things, um, you know, in, in a fashion that like, I think elevated them like a tiger King, uh, like a last dance. But then obviously, you know, we, 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 uh, had a bunch of things get canceled and delayed, you know, like, um, films. So it was a very, very interesting year because, you know, you, you didn't have, um, the ability to, to go to the theater and it, it, it massively affected the film industry. Um, but uh, and I, but I think the the positive byproduct of that was I think it allowed some things to flourish in uh, in in the loss of some of that content. So agreed, yeah. Well, um, this was fun. Thanks for joining me, and we'll have to reconvene for our next topic of interest. Thanks, man. Nice. Until next time.
Okay, my little nerd nerds, that is the episode. Thanks so much for checking out the episode, and thanks to my guest host, Jimmy Levins, for joining me and discussing the best of television from 2020. It was a very fun conversation. So, if you're digging what we're doing here on Nerds with Opinions, make sure that you are following me on social media at nerds underscore opinions on both Instagram and Twitter and Nerds with Opinions on Facebook. If you are on Apple Podcasts, rate and review this episode. It'll really help me out. If you're on Spotify, just make sure that you are following Nerds with Opinions, and if you feel so inclined, share this with your crew. As always, I'm your host, Matt Holman, and you have been listening to Nerds with Opinions.